It's winter, and you can now get almost anything you need for the coldest months of the year delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a ski slope delivered, but you can get dish soap delivered. Sunshine, that's a no. But a bottle of wine, that's a yes. A snow angel, sorry, no, but angel hair pasta. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol and select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. To improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. You are listening to the Technical File Podcast for Wednesday, March 28th, 2018. I am your host, Manny Fresh, and I am back again with another episode of the podcast. Uh, man, I can't believe it's it's almost April, man. Is, does anybody feel like this year has just been flying by? Like We're already in April, man. It's, it's crazy. I don't know. The older you get, the years just start freaking flying as fast. I, to all the kids that listen to the show, man, listen. Stay young. <laughs> Don't be so quick to grow up. Yo, I remember when I was when I was a kid, when I was like 12, 13, I just wanted to be 20, 25, 30, just be on my own, be a grown-up, be an adult. Bro, stay a child. The years just fly by. I, I it literally feels like two days ago was January 1st and I was watching the Rose Bowl. And and now it's like April. It, it's it's crazy. It really is crazy. But what up, everybody? Another episode of the podcast this week, and it's a, it's a special episode. Uh, got a special guest uh, coming on the podcast a little later, a couple minutes. Um, a guy that I've uh, been following his work for a while, um, huge fan of his podcast, uh, fellow Duke fan and a Met fan, so obviously we connected. Uh, Dan Labriola, host of the Duke Nation podcast, will join us on the show a little bit later um, to talk about, obviously, that horrific Horrific, heartbreaking, gut punch of a loss we experienced on Sunday. Um, I won't even, I won't even get into it here because it, it, I'm, I'm trying to save my talking points for for when Dan comes on the show. But I will say this: if you're a Duke fan, that's a loss that is going to haunt you for a long time. It just is. It, it's similar if you guys were alive or watching Duke or fan, or following Duke to the loss in the Final Four in '99. Uh, to UConn, uh, that 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 
type of loss, that loss that you'll just you'll think about. Even it doesn't matter how many national championships we win after this, this will still be a loss that you'll still think back on and just say, "How do we lose this game?" Uh, it's just uh, terrible, terrible. But I won't get into that. I'll, I'll save that for Dan. Um, but what I will get into is tomorrow is finally the day. Opening day of the 2018 Major League Baseball season. The boys of summer are finally back. Thank fucking God. Um, of course, I've missed my boys. I've missed baseball, of course. And and you guys know how I feel. You guys know my thoughts on baseball. Um, I, I, I've, I've said it before on this show, much to the chagrin of my co-hosts, Luke's and Jut, uh, in the past. Um, at, at its highest level, I think baseball is the best sport. I just, I really do. I stand by that statement. I'm not the only one that said that, obviously, but I just believe it. I think that at its highest level, everything being equal, I still think baseball at its highest level, there's nothing that can touch it. It just isn't. There's nothing like a major league baseball postseason game. It's just the drama, the intensity, the the way things can change at a drop of a hat. It's just amazing. And coming off the season that we had last year with the amazing with the amazing postseason and even even more amazing World Series that the Astros and the Dodgers had, um, baseball's got some juice for a lot of different reasons. Obviously, we talked about the postseason and the World Series, but I, I think the offseason this year has brought a lot of attention to the game, maybe for good reasons, maybe for bad reasons. Who knows? Um, I, I guess wherever you stand in that in that argument, I think you'll you'll fall you'll fall one way or another. But I think it's brought some juice to the game. I mean, I think the the off season or the lack of activity this off season with free agency um, has has caused a lot of conversation. And it's weird because I'm of two minds of this, and I really am. I, I'm of two minds with this whole situation. Um, the inactivity it's weird because I've never seen an off season like this. I've never seen an off season where you know, so many, I don't want to say great players, good players. And that also falls into the argument of this free agency class. Was it really a good free agency class? Was it a really, was it a, was it a, a whack free agency class? Was it a overrated free agency class? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I tend to think that this was a pretty fair, especially when you look at this class compared to other free agency classes we've had in the past. I think this is a pretty standard, pretty average to above average class compared to some of the other pastures. I mean, and these things tend to go in ebbs and flows. I mean, some years you have amazing free agency classes, like next year's free agency class is highlighted by obviously Bryce Harper and Machado and, and Donaldson and Kershaw. So compared to that, this year's class was, was, was a step below, but I think this free agency class had some good players and, and the, just the inactivity. I mean, just, I mean, really, we didn't really get a flurry of moves till late February. Really, when you think about it, right before spring training started, that's when you started really getting the flurry of the moves. And like I said before, I'm of two minds at this. And let me see, let me get this out of the way. I don't think there's collusion. I don't think that there's a strike loom. I know the players I've talked all their shit about. You know, they're not happy with how things have, with how things have unfolded. Um, they're not happy with the inactivity. They're not happy with tanking. They're not happy with the Marlins and their situation. Look, players can say whatever the hell they want. The fact of the matter is the last collective bargaining negotiation, the players got their asses handed to them. And I've said, and I've said this on the show, they got their asses handed to them. Tony Clark did a horrific job. And as much as I couldn't stand fear and wars on those guys in the nineties, cause I felt like they were the opposite. 
where they just everything was about trying to protect the players and keep the players at a high level and keep the players leverage over the owners uh, above anything else, almost to the detriment of the game. Those guys knew what they were doing. And to me, Tony Clark came off as an amateur and he got his ass handed to him by the owners. And my thing is when you get beat on the negotiating table, and I say this about NFL players all the time too. You know, NFL players constantly complain about Goodell having all this power and the power to be judge, jury, and executioner. Yet every con, every CBA negotiation, they let him keep the power. It's not a sticking point for them. So when you lose the negotiation battle, I can't listen to you complain about, well, you know, we're getting screwed and it's collusion. You can't argue. If I sit down on a table with you and I collectively come to an agreement on a framework on how we're going to run a league and how a relationship between players and owners is going to exist, and I sign off on it, I can't complain. You signed up for it. You signed up for it. There wasn't. It's not like you you signed up for something that you didn't know. It was collectively bargained. Everything had to be in writing. So you knew that this was gonna how, how it was going to play out. The owners have leverage. And, and, and I don't believe that it's collusion. Or, I, I think a lot of this is cyclical. I, I think that you have years where owners have leverages and you have years when, when players have leverage. And it comes all around. I think you can make the argument for the last 25 years that players have had the leverage. Really, since the strike, players have had leverage over the owners. I don't even think it's hard to, to argue that. But the players, I, I can't listen to them complain. It's my basic point. But that being said, um, this has been a weird offseason. And a lot of people have called it the, the sabermetric offseason and, and really where sabermetrics have really taken over the game. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say this. If, and you guys know how much I hate analytics and how much I hate sabermetrics. So with that being said, if the one positive thing, if the one great thing that comes out of sabermetrics and the rise of it in baseball that we finally start evaluating players the right way, then I'm all for it. I'm all for it because I, like many fans, have been fed up with the inordinate amount of contracts or high contracts that these players have been getting. And then here's my problem with the players as well. They don't complain when the Jason Bays of the world, when the when the Robinson Canoes, when the Pujols of the world get these inordinate, just completely just albatross contracts that – are bound to fail and never going to live up to their hype. They never complain about those. I never hear a player say, damn, Kevin Brown got $100 million. He's not going to live up to that. And I get it. They're not going to throw their brethren under the bus like that. I understand that. But these players never complain when their brethren get these big-time contracts and never live up to them. And they basically put their team in a hole for seemingly a decade. I don't hear any players complaining about Albert Pujols. And I love Pujols. A whole future first round, first battle Hall of Famer. This isn't a slight against Pujols, but his contract is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I haven't heard too many players complain about Albert Pujols and his contract. So it's it's okay when you're getting the money and you're getting all the years thrown into it. Ah, oh, everything is good. Let's pat ourselves on the back. Ah, we win for us. It's a win for us. But when the owners finally get smart and say, hold up, I can't, I can't afford to give, you know, it's one thing to go out there and pay an Albert Pujols, a guy who at least has a resume, a 10 year deal. That's bad enough. But when I'm going, when I'm asked to go out here and give marginal players above, sometimes more, when, when marginal players are exceeding the market and basically creating their own market and getting these inordinate 
contracts, that's where the shit is getting crazy. That's where it's getting crazy. So I love that owner. Now, I don't want to say that they've smartened up because next offseason will be the real test. You know, we'll see next year if these owners have smartened up. We'll see next year if, because for all the shit that we're talking about now, you know, all it takes is a dumb owner next year to go out there and give Josh Donaldson a $200 million deal for 10 years. You know, even Harper, you know, Harper's what, 26? You know, I, I'd, I'd even have to, I'd have to think long and hard about giving him a 10 year deal. I really would. So next year will really be the determining factor. If this is a, a new trend here to stay, or is this just a one year anomaly? But I, a lot of back and forth has been had on the offseason and the lack of player activity and the fact that big name players are still available or big name players got completely below what they, I mean, has there been a guy that took more of an L than Mike Moustakis? And I'm not a big Moustakis fan. I think he's overrated. I never believe, matter of fact, I was, I was going to have a conniption if anybody gave Mike Moustakis more than $100 million. Um, if anybody gave him even Sandoval money, I was going to have a conniption because I, I, I'm just not a big fan of Moustakas. To me, he's one of those guys. He had a career year, his his walk year. So that tells me a lot. And he's not a great hitter, strikes out a ton, doesn't walk a lot. I, I'm not a big Moustakas guy, but he's looking out. He, this is a guy that got a qualifying offer. So he would have made $17 million had he accepted it. And... He waited, he waited, he waited, he waited, he waited, he waited, played his hand, played his hand, and he got fucked. I mean, excuse my French, but he got he got burned. He got burned. There's no other way to put it. He got burned. And he had to sign, he had to re-sign with the Royals for a one-year, six million dollar deal. And of course, at that point, he went from getting 17 million to six million dollars. I mean, that's a huge loss. Huge loss. I think that's what he signed for, six million. It could be less. But he signed for $6 million. So he took an ultimate loss. So the offseason has been interesting. But as we kick off the reg- as we kick off the start of the season, um, obviously there's been a lot of talk about, you know, tanking in baseball and and the, su- the Super 7, the seven magnificent teams. Uh, let me attack the Super 7 theory first. So there's this idea that really for the first time in a long time that, you know, baseball is really a haves and have not sport that you have seven really good teams then a couple teams in the middle. And then there's just a bunch of dreck. And, and while I agree with the teams in the, in the bottom being drecks, the, the, the notion that there's seven really good teams and that there's just there's a guarantee that these seven teams are going to make the playoffs. I, I think it's a fallacy. I think it's a I think it's a false narrative. I don't understand why the media has taken this and ran with it because I just don't buy it. I think that – I think every year – I think every year, if you were to go back every year and look at on paper the season, you were always going to have teams that you felt on paper were really good. Like there wasn't even a debate like, oh, if this team plays well, if this team does this, that, and the other, they're going to be this. They're going to be that. So I struggle with this notion, and and if you guys haven't been following the offseason, the, the notion that the Cubs, the Nationals, the Dodgers, and the NL, and in the AL you have the, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Astros, and the Indians as the as the seven really great 
or at least very good to great teams that are guaranteed to be in the playoffs and everybody else is kind of fighting for a couple of wild card spots. And I just don't buy into that because first of all, we can look on paper and say, oh, this team is going to do this and this team is going to go do that and this team is going to be this and blah, 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 blah. That's fine. That's fine. But the fact is we don't know. I can sit here right now and tell you that, yeah, the Yankees are going to win the AL East and it's like they might as well just hand them the trophy this year because it's just – I don't know that. I don't know that and I'll and I'll get into my predictions here in a second, but I don't know that. I don't know that. It's a 162-game season. A lot of things can happen. Guys can get hurt. Guys can have career career years. Guys can have years that they just career, career worse years, I should say. Not live up to expectations, not live up to numbers that they've put up in the past. You know, all those things can happen. And sometimes there's just years that teams come out of nowhere and surprise. Look at last year. Last year is a perfect example. Who expected the Brewers to do what they did? Who expected the Twins to have the season that they had? Nobody. So the notion that there's a Super 7 and that there's everybody else, I, I, think, it's, I think it's a false prophecy that has been put, that's been put out there by the, by the baseball media. I, I'm not sure I buy it. I really don't. And even the seven teams, I think they're all flawed teams. I don't think there's a, a perfect team in that mix there. And I'll get into it. But I don't think there's, I don't think there's a perfect team in there. Now the Drex, uh, we know the Drex. We know the Drex. We know the Reds are going to be fucking horrible. We know the Marlins are going to be. And this idea that the Marlins were wrong to tear it down because, you know, look at what they're doing to that mark. First of all, they don't have any fans. Everybody knows the Marlins have no fan base. They're in a terrible market. Miami has proven once again that it's not a sports town. It's, it's, it's definitely not a baseball town and it's a shitty baseball and it's a shitty sports town. They don't come out. They don't support that team. They've never supported that team. And this idea that they broke up some really good team. No, they weren't. That was a team. I, I watched that team all the time. Every year. That team had, at best, as a 75, 70. It won 77 games last year. That's not a great team. That wasn't a team on the verge of anything. They're not that good. Now, I agree Jeter's been a fuck-up since he's gotten there, and he's done some things wrong. And and the, the jury's still out whether, jury, uh, whether Jeter's going to be the guy if he's going to have a, a Jordan-esque type run where he's going to be a phenomenal player and be a shitty executive, we'll see about that. Right now, it's looking like that's the case, but we'll see. But I can't blame anybody in that Miami new, but that new Miami ownership for saying, hey, we got to tear this shit down because it's not working. It's not working. And I know there's a lot of aspects that went into that, but it's just not, it hasn't worked. Not to mention, they were like $50 million in debt. I, I, anybody that's that's criticizing the Marlins for what they did, it just doesn't understand the just doesn't understand what the hell is going on. But we know, we know that they're going to be tracks. I, I just, I don't buy into the aspect that, um, you know, that there's just going to be, there's just going to be halves and ha you know, that there's seven just really good teams that we just, matter of fact, we should just pencil those guys in. I, I just don't buy that. Um, as far as my predictions, um, we'll start in the NL. Um, I'll start in the NL East. I think the Nationals will win the division, but I think I don't think the Nationals are a lock as anybody else thinks. First of all, I think I I think it's now or never for the Nationals. I think it's now or never for the Nationals. I, I think this is the year where it's it's gotta be World Series of Bust for that franchise. This run, this six year window that they've had that started in 2012, it's gotta culminate with something this year. 
Because if it, if it doesn't, then it's over. Harper leaves. You might as well break it up. Why? Scherzer's 34 years old. He's thrown a lot of innings, a lot of wear and tear on that shoulder. He's still great and he's still dynamic. I get that. But eventually, you got to believe eventually, you know, age is going to start to show even a little bit. Strasburg is one injury away from being out. And their pitching staff is not that great. I don't love the rest of the rotation. Gio Gonzalez, uh, Tanner Warwick, really? Their bullpen still hasn't, imp- hasn't, been, hasn't been improved. I like Doolittle, but everybody else is a question mark at best in that bullpen. So I don't think the Nationals are this this juggernaut that everybody makes them out to be. I think they'll win the division, but I can see my Mets knocking them off. I'm not sold on the Phillies just yet. I I I I'm I'm not ready to go there with the Phillies just yet. I know everybody's all gun ho on the Phillies and and all oh, the Phillies are this and right Reese Hoskins and you know look can Reese Hoskins play 162 games before I'm ready to commit all the way to Reese Hoskins? I've seen these guys that come up in late August and just hit a whole bunch of home runs and you know kill it. You know Shane Spencer anybody anybody remember Shane Spencer? Mike Jacobs, a Met prospect that came up and just killed it at the end of 2005. Never to be seen or heard from again. So let's slow down on Reese Hoskins. And it's not the Philly hate. I'm just, I'm just being honest. And but what? Because they signed Arietta, all of a sudden the Phillies are, are, are a wild card contending team. They lost 90 something games last year. So I'm not ready to go there with the Phillies. I think they'll be improved. I think they'll be better. I, I can see them winning 75 to 77 games or something, right about that. But I'm not ready to sit there and say that the, the, the Phillies are, are this team that is going to just, um, you know, that's going to just, take off and be this year's version of the Twins. They can be. They can be, absolutely. But I just don't see it just yet. The Braves, I think the Braves, I mean, I, I, I'm still waiting on this this amazing pitching staff that they were supposed to be getting through prospects to come up and show it because I haven't seen it. Fulton Evich hasn't been what they've expected. You know, the Fires kid or the Freeze kid, whatever his name is, I, I haven't been impressed, you know, uh, the other cat that they got from the Angels, he had some moments, but I haven't really been impressed with him. So I'm still waiting on the Braves, you know, magical pitching to come up and dominate. Um, from the position side of things, I mean, I think they're going to be better. They're going to score runs. They're going to do what they do. Uh, Dan's, it's a big year for Dansby Swanson. Um, Okuna, I know they sent him down, but he'll be back in mid-April and probably win rookie of the year. Um, but I mean, I think the NL East is the NL East. I think the Mets and the Nationals, the NL East. Uh, Mets has a wild card. Nationals is a division winner. I think that, um, I think the Central is the Cubs, but I think the Cubs, the, the gap between the Cubs and everybody else has, has, has closed a little bit. Cause I think the, I love what the Brewers did. I think they had a great offseason. I would have loved them to cap it by adding a, a starting pitcher. They didn't. Um, we'll see if they were able to get one at the, at the deadline, but, um, you know, I think the Brewers had some amazing, had, had a really good offseason. And I and I don't love what the I don't love what the Cubs did this offseason. You know, you Darvish, really? I mean, they to me, they chose you Darvish over Jake Arrieta. I would have taken Jake Arrieta if if you ask me. I, I'm not a you Darvish guy. I mean, did they watch the World Series? Did the Cubs watch the World Series? Did Theo watch the World Series at all? I clearly he didn't because he gave you Darvish a hundred million dollars, and I, I I never never in my life would have did that. But whatever. And and I love Theo, but Theo and his free agent decisions are questionable. Especially in pitchers. Matt Clement, anyone? So, I don't love what the car. Uh, they still don't have a bullpen. 
Their bullpen has arguably gotten worse. So I, I don't love their bullpen there. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think the clubs are, I don't think the clubs, the Cubs are a slam dunk as everybody else is making them out to be. So we got to see there. I don't love what the Cardinals did. I know they got Ozuna and they made a couple other moves, but I, I'm, I'm, there's just something missing with the Cardinals. I don't know what to put my hand. I don't know. What, I don't know if I could put my finger on it. It's just, just something missing with that team that just, it, it, I don't know what it is. I, I don't know. I think Ozuna will help them, but I just, I don't know. I don't know. I think the Brewers are better. I think the Bre- I have the Brewers actually. I don't know yet. I'll come back to that. But I think the Brewers and the Cubs will battle for that division all year. I really do. Um, in the West, um, I think the Dodgers will take a step back. I don't think they'll be as good as they were last year. Now, obviously, they won 104 games last year, and they had a, a stretch late in the season where they were 91 and 36. So a step back from that is what exactly? I don't think a step from that is a step back isn't exactly 77 and, you know, 80, you know, and, you know, 84. I think a step back is 94, 95, 96 wins. I think the division's better. Um, but I still think the Dodgers are the team to beat in that division. Um, I don't love their pitching staff. I'm not crazy about their pitching staff, but push comes to shove. They still have Kershaw. Um, they still have Jansen. I think the, I think the Dodgers will win that division. Um, you know, I think the Diamondbacks are going to have a step back. I, I wasn't impressed with the Diamondbacks last year. I thought they did that a lot with smoke and mirrors. Um, I, I, I wasn't really too sold on the Diamondbacks last year, and I think they've gotten worse. I think they should have kept Martinez. I know they tried to. Um, they couldn't work out the particulars of a deal, but I, I'm not sold on the Diamondbacks. I think the Ro- I love what the Rockies did going out there and getting Wade Davis, um, improving that bullpen. I think the Rockies are going to try to do it with a dominant bullpen because I don't, I don't think you could ever trust a starting. I know that starting rotation kind of exceeded expectations last year, especially with all the young guys, but I, I'm not, I'm not ready to believe that the, that the Rockies are this great pitching team. So I think they're going to do it with, a, they're going to at least try to do it on paper with a dominant, bo- a dominant bullpen. And, you know, their offense is always going to be their offense. I mean, they're always going to bludgeon teams to death. So I think the Rockies are going to be a good team. Um, I think the Diamondbacks can take a step back. And to me, the biggest boom or bust candidate, I'll say boom right now. Um, I'll say the, the Giants are going to be better. Look, the Giants, the last year was an aberration. The Giants were not that bad. I mean, the Giants were historically bad last year. The Giant, that team, that manager, that, that, that culture there, they're better than that. Everybody knows it. I think that, I think the Giants will be competitive again this year. I think they'll win it, I don't know, 85 to 87 games, compete for a wild card spot. Um, I think they'll be right in the mix. I know the Bumgarner injury hurts them. Um, six weeks he's out to start the year. That's not exactly great karma or a great, you know, message to start off the season with, but I think they'll be okay. I really do. I think after everything went wrong last year, I mean, you got to believe that there's going to be some kind of market correction there. So I think the Giants are going to be better. I can't pick a wild card right now. <sighs> I guess if I have to, I'm going to go with my Mets. Of course, I'm going to go with my Mets and I'll break down my Mets and my thoughts on the team uh, with Dan, but. Um, I'm going to go with the Mets and um, I'm going with the Dodgers winning the division. I'm going to go with the Mets winning the, the first wild card. And, I, and I'm going to go with, you know what? No, I'm going to go on a limb. I'm going to say the Mets win the division and the Nationals are the wild card. And I think the Giants are the second wild card. I think so. The, the wild card race is going to come down to two spots, four teams competing for that spot. The Nationals, the Giants, the Rockies, and the Brewers, and I think the Nationals will get one spot, and I think the Giants will get the other. I, I, I that's my prediction. Um, as far as the AL, um, 
I'll, I'll breeze through these a little bit quicker, but um, the AL, um, I'm not sold on the Yankees. To me, and I know that the first thing you guys are going to say is, oh, I'm a, I'm a hater and this, that, and the other. And of course, I hate the Yankees. But this notion, this belief that we might as well just not even play American League Baseball this year and just hand the title over to the Yankees, it's a complete tomfoolery. It's complete tomfoolery. First of all, did the Yankees win a World Series last year? I, I, I seem to misremember. I thought the Astros won the World Series. Cause you, I mean, if you listen to everybody talk, the Yankees won the World Series last year. They didn't. And I know they added Stanton and, and I'm not even going to rant about that again. I ranted about that enough, but I know they added, I know they added Stanton. And first of all, the one thing you have to understand about the Yankees, everything broke right for the Yankees last year. Everything that was everything broke right for the Yankees. I think even, and I know the Yankee fan, like the back of my hand, I have family members that are Yankee fans. My entire family is Yankee fans. So I know the Yankee fan mentality like the best of them. Even the biggest Yankee fan last year did not expect Aaron Judge to be Aaron Judge. And if he did, he's a liar. They're bold-faced lying. They didn't expect Aaron Judge to do what he did. Aaron Judge was a guy that was, was in danger of not even making the roster. And he went from being a fourth outfielder to an MVP. Luis Severino was a guy that was an enigma in 2016 to, to a Cy Young candidate in 2017. Everything broke right. They made magic, you know, they made tremendous trades. Everything that was everything broke. They even got a contribution out of Ellsbury before he got hurt again. No surprise. Like everything, they had a resurgence from Brett Gardner. Like CeCe Sabathia found the fountain of youth. Everything that was everything went right for that team. And you guys know the theory that one year, everything that, everything that was everything that could go right goes right. Usually the next year, there's a little bit of a market correction. Usually things kind of come back to, to normal. Now I'm not saying that Judge is going to be a, a fourth outfielder this year. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that. Um, I'm not saying, I'm not saying necessarily that Severino is going to turn out to be a bum again this year. I, I'm not saying that necessarily, but I'm saying that we can't, you know, Didi Gregorius. Now, Didi was has been good for the Yankees, but Didi became a, a, a an MVP candidate for the Yankees last year. I don't think he's you know that that went above and beyond anybody's expectations. So uh, again, slow down the hype on the Yankees. I still don't love their pitching staff. Like I still don't love their pitching staff. Like CeCe's old. I know he had a resurgence, but he's old. You know Tanaka. You know everybody forgets because he had that dominant, that truly amazing postseason. Like, and I think he was doing that more for money than I think he was for his actual. I think he was just trying to perform well to cash in. And then he ended up just staying, staying, you know, opting into his deal. But, you know, everybody forgets that this was a guy that was terrible in the offs, in the regular season. Awful, awful. So what Tanaka are we getting? Are we getting the good Tanaka? Are we getting postseason Tanaka? Are we getting regular season Tanaka? That's a question mark. Sonny Gray. He was a disappointment last year. He was a guy that did not meet expectations. So, you know, I got to see more from Sonny Gray before I'm all gung-ho. You know, and Severino, look, again, guy had a tremendous year, really stepped up, really came into his own. Can he do it again? I think there's a real question mark about that. Can he do it again? You know, we don't know. He's had one full year. Do we know for sure that he can do it again? I don't know that. He threw a lot of innings, and he wasn't great in the postseason. That's another thing. He was not great in the postseason. He had that one game against the Indians, and that, that they, the Yankees gave him a five-run lead. So, I mean, he really had to do much. But, you know, he was not great against the Indians. He wasn't great against the Astros. 
So he didn't have a great postseason. So, you know, I think there's a question mark on Severino. He threw a lot of innings. That bullpen has got to be, you know, we'll see how that bullpen recovers from, from all the innings that they threw in the postseason. So I don't think the Yankees are this lock that everybody thinks. Look, they're, we know that they're going to bludgeon teams to death. We know that. Their offense is going to they're, – they're, they're going to score runs. I'm not worried about that. And I think the Yankees will be a good team. But this idea that we should just basically hand the division over to the Yankees, it, it's a fallacy. I, I really believe that. Plus, I think the Red Sox – I think I like the J.D. Martinez move. I think he's going to rake in Boston. If Price is healthy, the Red Sox have a better rotation than the Yankees. I don't even think it's debatable. I don't think it's arguable. I, I just don't. The Yankees have the, the Red Sox have Chris Sale and David Price, and the Yankees have Tanaka and Severino. Who are you taking? And I know Price has been a disaster in the postseason, but realistically, let's 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 use common sense. And I think the and, and I think people are not I think people are not counting on the Orioles, and I think they're sleeping on them. And I still think the Orioles have a potential to be a very good team. You know, it was just two years ago they were in the wild card game. They were a good team in that division. You know, they've been a pretty good team for the most part these last few years. Buck Showalter is right now the best manager in the division. I don't even think it's arguable. I think Coral will do a good job, but you know, he's still a rookie. The jury's still out on on Boone. So, so Buck easily is the best manager in the division right now. So, you know, I, you know, I think people are discounting the Orioles and I think that's a mistake. So I got the Red Sox winning the division and I think this is an easy one. The American League is easy. I, I got both the Yankees and the Orioles winning the wild cards. So I don't even think it's a, I don't even have to, I don't have to pause for drama as far as what I'm going to pick for my wild card. I think it's going to be the Yankees and the Orioles. I think you're going to have three teams come out of the uh, American League East. Um, in the central, I think it's the Indians. I mean, even though, even though I think the Indians have taken a step back from their 102 win team last year, I think the Indians are still good. I think they still have a very good pitching staff. Um, um, they, they had some departures in their bullpen, but I think, you know, Francona, I think he, he, he's the best at figuring out how to use his guys. I think he'll, I think the Indians are a good team. I think there's some pressure on the Indians. I do, I will say that. Um, you know, I think I think they're similar to the Nationals in the sense that it's now or never for them too. You know, they're they're not like all these other teams. Their window is very limited. We know that they're a small market team. Andrew Miller and Cody Allen are free agents after the year. You know, it's it's almost do or die now. Die do or die time for them too now. You know, it's now or never for them. You know, it's it's time for them to make some moves and and do some big things. So I think the Indians have to make some moves, and and there's a lot of pressure on Corey Kluber. You know, all I have to say about Corey Kluber, and I said it last year when he lost in the postseason, the last three games, big games, big time games that his team has played, Corey Kluber has been a disaster. No need to debate it. No need to argue it. World Series game seven, he was not great. Game two of the ALDS, he was not great. Got rocked. And game five, he was not great. Game five of the ALDS against the Yankees, it was not great. So uh, there's some pressure on Corey Kluber to kind of silence some critics, at least critics here on this show. About Corey Kluber. Um, AL West, Astros. I, I don't even think there's even much of a debate. <laughs> I honestly, I don't think there's much of a debate. So Astros in the AL West, um, there's no need to even break it down. The Astros are the best. I think the Astros are the best team in 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 in, in, the, in the American League. So there it is. <laughs> don't need to even get into it. Uh, so I got... As far as who's comes out of the American League, I've got the Astros. I don't know. I've got the Astros repeating as American League champions. 
Um, I think they beat the Red Sox in the ALCS. And I've got my Mets, of course. Come on. Of course I'm going to pick my Mets. Um, I've got my Mets defeating. <sighs> I got my Mets defeating. I got my Mets defeating the Dodgers in the NLCS and advancing to the World Series where they will play the Astros and they will win the World Series. I know you guys are going to kill me because, oh, you're going to pick the Mets, blah, blah, blah. You're going to be disappointed. I got to pick my team. It's like picking Duke in the Final Four. Of course, I'm going to pick my squad. I'm not going to sit there and give you the Nationals in the World Series. Of course not. Like, I'm going to give you the Mets. That's what I'm going to do. Of course, I'm a Mets fan. You know what I mean? But, uh, yeah, so I'm going to pick the Mets. Um, so that that's that's what it is. Man. Uh, that is that is what it is. Um, picks for MVP and Cy Young. Um, I've got in the American League for MVP, I think Stanton and, and, and Judge, even if you think Judge is going to have a monster year, I think they'll split the vote somewhat. Um, unless Stanton, unless Stanton just has a truly just horrible first year in New York, which I can see. Um, I think they'll split the vote. Um, the American League MVP, obviously it starts with Trout. Uh, Altuve is going to have some, some, something to say about it, of course. Uh, I'm going to go with American League MVP. I am going to go with Mookie Betts. I think Betts is going to have an MVP bounce back year. Um, you can make the case he probably should have won it two years ago. Um, I, I think the addition of JD Martinez only helps that this year. He has that big bat presence to protect him in the lineup. I think Mookie's going to win the MVP this year for the Red Sox. Uh, Cy Young. Um, hmm. Cy Young. I'm going to go with a surprise pick. I'm going to go with hmm, James Paxton of the Mariners. Eh, I, I, I figure I'd go with a surprise pick, an off-the-wall pick. I don't know. I just think the guy has – he's – in a lot of ways, he reminds me of the Mets' Steven Matz. A lefty, but he's always had some injury concerns. I think this is the year he finally kind of puts it all together, finally stays healthy, finally has a big year for the Mariners. I don't think it helps the Mariners because I think the Mariners are just going to be a disappointment again. Um, I, I think the Mariners are going to have to tear that team down. I, I think they missed their shot. I think they missed their boat, and that team is going to get old pretty quickly. So I think they're going to have to tear it down eventually. And I think this is the year where I think they start. I think they, I think I can see the, I think I can see the Mariners hovering around 500, but I think they're not going to make it. I, that, that's my one breakdown of that division. I think it's the Astros and then everybody else, but, um, I'm going to go with Paxson as my uh, Cy Young pick. Um, in the NL, I got Noah. Yeah. Let's go with the Homer picks. I got my man Noah Thor winning the Cy Young. He's healthy. He's ready. I think he's got, I think he's going to have a little chip on his shoulder after he kind of, he kind of got humbled a little bit last year with the whole MRI thing and then pulling the lat, basically missing his entire season. I think Noah's going to come out guns blazing this year to win a Cy Young. And then as far as MVP in the NL, um, I'm going to go with Anthony Rizzo of the Cubs for MVP. Um, yeah, that's going to be my pick, Anthony Rizzo. So. That is my prediction. I will officially write this down on paper, put it online, make you guys screenshot it, record it, hold me to it all year. These are going to be my picks. And I reserve the right to change my mind on these picks. So before tomorrow morning, <laughs> before I post these, I reserve my my uh, my right to change my mind. But these will be my picks and I'll post them tomorrow. So I'm going to take a little bit of a break and I'll be back with Dan Labriola of the Duke Nation podcast as my guest this week. Um, 
He's going to come talk to us about the Duke, about the Duke loss and the future of the program and how this season will be remembered. And of course, we're going to get into some Mets baseball. So stay tuned. We'll be back after a break. You are listening to the Technical Foul Podcast, the realest sports podcast in all the world. Listen and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and all other podcasting services. Follow us on social media on Facebook at The Technical Foul Podcast, where you can become an official member of our TFP Nation. On Instagram at The TF Podcast and on Twitter at The TF Podcast One. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Yo, welcome back to the podcast. And uh, our guest today is a very special guest. He is the host of the Duke Nation podcast. Uh, you guys know I had to have this guy on the show eventually, right? So I figured what better time, what better way than to get him on a show after a heartbreaking and horrific Duke loss so we can both vent together. Uh, Mr. Dan Labriola, of course, he is the host of the Duke Nation podcast, and he is also a Met fan, very excited about the upcoming season. So we will get into that with him as well. Dan, this is Manny. What's going on, man? How you doing? Hey, Manny. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh... Glad to have you on. Uh, we exchanged some uh, some DMs uh, this week and uh, told this gentleman that I am a fan of his show, and uh, he's yeah, a fellow. Much, and he's a, and he's much a fellow. And he's a fellow Duke fan and a Mets fan. So we have a lot of things in common. So you know, they, they say great people <laughs> travel in packs. So so I guess we're, I guess uh, we're great people then. Hey, I'm, hey, I'll take it, man. No cool. doubt. Cool. So before we get into what we're going to get into. Um, you just want to introduce yourself to the audience who hasn't had a chance to listen to you before. Just kind of give a quick bio about yourself and how you got into podcasting and all that good stuff. Yeah, sure. So, uh, like you said, my name's Dan Labriola. Uh, I host the Duke Nation podcast for the DukeNation.com with uh, my co-host Ryan Loman, who uh, we listen to some Duke podcasts and he suggested that we, uh, we come out and make our own sort of, you know, by the fans, for the fans, and things kind of just took off. And, you know, we were, we were lucky enough to uh, early on get John Rothstein to come on to our show and wow. talk, talk about uh, it was the 2016-2017 team and when they were having all their injuries. And then since then, we've, uh, we've been lucky enough to have some, some other guests, some former players, some uh, – some former Duke football players, some NFL guys, and it's really it's just been a lot of fun. But more about myself, I'm a junior at George Mason. I study economics, and like you said, I'm an I'm an avid sports fan. I love I love my Blue Devils. I love my Mets, and I'm just ready for opening day tomorrow. And I guess for next season for Duke, since things didn't really work out as planned. Yeah, we'll get into it. We'll definitely get into it. Uh, cool, cool. Well, we'll we'll excuse the fact that you're a Devils fan. We won't, we won't, oh, we won't get into okay. that. You know, this is a this is a Rangers household. But uh, oh, okay, all yeah. right. Well, you see, we haven't been to the playoffs since what 2012. So yeah, it's been a while. Things are, you know, you know, we're. I mean, the Rangers are in a are in a good situation with their rebuild. They they're always going to be the uh, the top of the market for free agents, and it'll be interesting to see what they do. Yeah, I'm I'm I guess it was time. I'm I'm I don't know how I feel about it just yet. I think we could have I think we could have gotten at least uh one more run out of out of the core of the out of that core group. But unfortunately, um you know how it is. Sometimes uh it's better than it's better to pull the plug early than than to pull the plug when it's too late. So I I understand I I could see both sides of the argument. I know some fans I know some fans that were not happy with the returns or at least felt that we could have got more, at least for Ryan McDonough and some guys, but 
you know, it is what it is. It's, it's about the picks. It's about the yeah, picks. absolutely, absolutely. And like I and, and I haven't had a chance too much to talk about this season on the podcast anyway. Um, but you know, I, I think with with trades like these, and when you do a rebuild, I mean, it's hard to grade it in the moment. It's hard to grade it right now or even oh, it's, next it's year. It's impossible. Yeah, it's exactly. Exactly. It's 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 something that you have to grade. You know, three at the very least, three, four, five years down the line. Before yeah, you can definitely. Yeah. I mean, if you just look at, you can look at any trade. The first thing that came to mind when you're talking about, uh, you know, maybe it being an early rebuild was, uh, I know since we're, uh, you're a Mets fan, correct? Yes. So we're both Mets fans, and the Phillies hung on a bit too late to their Absolutely. to their core yep. of Rollins, Utley, and Howard, and then just, I mean, still, you look back a couple of years, and you know. They still had Ryan Howard and his huge contract, and it really set them back. So, you know, you never know how that stuff's going to work out. At the time, they were great contracts, or, you know, they made trades and whatnot. But uh, it could be the right thing, but you figure it out a few years later. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I, I completely agree. Well, enough about uh, hockey, because we're going to bore some, <laughs> some of my listeners who are anti-hockey. We're going to bore them to death, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. But but let's get into our Blue Devils. Obviously, we share a uh, common interest. We're both diehard Duke fans. Um, very disappointing loss on Sunday on a, on, a, on a variety of levels. Losing to Kansas 85-81. Um, very simply, Daniel, what happened? Well, I thought Duke played – actually, I really thought they played terrific in the second half. Everything kind of was – uh, was working out, you know, other than Grayson, who for the, uh, for the second straight game was really, was really struggling to get his shot and really hadn't attempted much until towards late in the game when he was getting fouled and making his free throws. But, um, I mean, Trey Duval played probably one of the best games he's played as a Blue Devil. I think it's, I think uh, it's his best game, really. Absolutely. I mean, he was doing absolutely everything. He was getting to the basket at will, making, Making great plays, playing good defense. Um, you know, Carter was obviously in foul trouble. Uh, we Marvin Bagley was. I mean, I mean, he was Marvin Bagley. There's nothing yeah. else you really yeah. need to say. And Trent wasn't doing all that well, but at the end of the day, they put themselves in the position to win. Uh, a couple things, obviously, that will stick out. But you know, it's um, at the time Duke was up by three with about 50 seconds left, and. Uh, they get the ball in the post to Wendell Carter yeah, Jr. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, I mean, I've said it many times, but you know, give me any day of the week, Wendell Carter Jr. in the post and have him make a post move. And he did. And honestly, at the time, he, he just choked the ball a bit too hard, came mm-hmm. up short. And then another key play down the other way. Duke's back in their, in their two, three zone. They got back well in transition, but for, um, I mean, it's obviously it's easy for me to say now, but for some reason, um, Trey Duval goes for the steal when uh, yep. leaving Steve Makailu open, and when he but when he went for the steal, the thing was Devontae Graham was already being guarded by my. I believe it was Grayson. I'm not 100 percent sure on that, but I think it way, was. Duval I think you're right. I think open. you're right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because either way, Duval uh, Duval comes over for the steal, doesn't get it. Graham's able able to get off a pass, and Makailu had missed a couple threes, but you know it recently when he was wide open, but. Not a guy you can leave open. He knocked down the three, and you know then of course the the agony and the torture at the end there when uh, when Grayson puts up a, an extremely difficult shot that uh, on, uh, looked like it was in, looked like it was in a couple times, and 
Yeah, that was that was the end of regulation. But I guess to uh, to really answer your question, uh, towards the end of the game, the thing that I didn't really completely understand was uh, they got away from Marvin Bagley a bit yeah. too much. A bit too much for me. Um, he's a potential generational talent. He's arguably probably for a one year scenario one of the best, if not the best, Blue Devil uh, to put on a to put on the blue and white and. Frankly, they got away from him, and I understand wanting to go to Grayson or whatever, but you know, I think they got away from him too much. I personally think you can give it to him in the post and let him make a play, but at the end of the day, those things happen, and obviously the um, block charge with uh, Wendell Carter, which personally, obviously, through my... I, I try to say unbiased eyes, but uh, <laughs> of course I'm a Duke fan, so there there is always going to be a bit of bias there. It looks like a charge to me, but at the end of the day, Duke had every opportunity to win the game and frankly just came up short. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I agree with everything you said. Um, I, I know I, I, you know, just being online, being on Twitter, talking to fellow Duke fans, I know they, they, they tended to make a lot out of the charge. And I think we can all – I mean, every basketball fan in America, even even the Duke haters out there who take pride and joy in hating on Duke, and we understand <laughs> it, we get it. But uh, even they had to admit that that was clear as day a charge. I mean, anybody with a with you know a second-grade understanding of basketball understood that that was a charge. <laughs> that being said, I don't think that changed the game. I, I, I Honestly, I thought the biggest play of the game – Really was the Wendell Carter missed shot. I mean, that's it. That's yeah. that right there. You put that game away. I mean, everything that happens Absolutely. after that game, after that. I mean, everything that happens after that possession is is null and void if you make that shot. At the very least, make the shot, get fouled, something. And yeah. you got one of your best post players in the post, deep in the post, and that's a shot that Wendell nine times out of ten makes. And he didn't he make it, it this time. Yeah, yeah, he made it all season. Exactly. He made it all season. Or at the very least, goes to the line and draws a foul. You know what I mean? So um, so I thought that was really, really costly there because it was a three-point game. I think it was like 30-something seconds left, I believe, at the time. Yeah. And he makes that shot. It's a five-point game. Who knows? Maybe he makes it in an end one, hits the free throw. It's a six-point. I mean, it, it just completely changes the game. Um, it kept Kansas in it. Um I do believe I, I will disagree with one thing. I, I don't think they played as well in the second half as they as they did in the first half. I thought they control for the most part they controlled the game in the first half. I thought in the second half the defense really let them down. Um, and I don't know about you, but I was I was always worried about the zone. I always felt like sooner or later that zone defense would come back to bite us. And I think in the second half it came back to, to bite us. Um, especially when Kansas made adjustments when they were when they were able to put a guy in there in the center that could pass out. Um, um, Duke just I, I don't know what it was. It, they just could not defend that corner three, that corner spot three. You know what I'm talking about. It just got eaten up alive in the second half. Whether it was Newman, whether it was um, um, Vic, um, yeah. two guys yeah. that just completely killed Duke in the second half. Um, what's your thoughts on the zone? And did you see it the way that I did? Uh, I personally, after having watched uh, a bunch of film on their on their man to man defense, mm-hmm. I honestly didn't have any real issues with their zone because watching the issues that they had, like I said, with the man to man, and com- with a comparison to the way they played zone, I 
I thought it was leaps and bounds better, and it gave them more chances to win the to win games. Honestly, and mm-hmm. uh, evidently, Coach K and, and staff felt uh, the same way since they stuck with it even right. you know, earlier in the season. Games like against Boston College and stuff like that, where the man where the man to man defense really cost them, and for most part, for a lot of really for that entire game, cost them the game. But um, the second half, yeah, their zone was definitely. Um, uh, definitely not as as crisp as it as it had been in the past, but uh, a lot of it I, I saw uh, somewhere on Twitter they changed their the type of zone they were playing a ton. Yeah, they did. Uh, yeah. Whether it was a one three one or they mm-hmm. went three two and then they went two three and uh, it almost I don't know if it got them out of their comfort zone, but either way, Kansas was able to uh, get into the middle. And that's the thing with Duke zone. They uh, it was almost as if they had the philosophy that. Um, you know, hey, you can take the, the easy twos. We'll give you the two-on-one down low. Mm-hmm. Really, you get to the middle of the zone, and they'll have Carter playing almost safety right there. Right. And um, and say, do you want, you can go ahead two-on-one. Once you're not hitting threes, we're fine. But when they started switching up, the corner threes were open. And, um, you know, I, I do agree that their zone wasn't, uh, wasn't as good in the second half, but it still gave them the opportunity and the chance to win the game, like we talked about and really came down to two possessions at the end of the, at the end of regulation in three, if you want to include Grayson's uh, last second attempt, but um, I never had a problem with them playing zone only because I mean, their, their issues uh, with help side defense and uh, guarding the dribble drive were so uh, they were, they were just really in the beginning of the season atrocious to, to the point where, when you commit to the zone, you can't go back, especially that late in the season. Right, I understand. I mean, what, what, speaking on the zone and, and the man-to-man defense, I mean, why do you think they were so bad defensively in man-to-man? I mean, you look at the athletes that they have there, and I know that 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 that, that playing defense isn't all about athleticism. Obviously, we, I, I right. get that, but you know, you would think that a team with Wendell Carter, with Marvin Bagley, with Gary Trent, you know, Grayson, you know. Guys that are athletic. I mean, these not these are not, you know, these are not you and me out there. I mean, these are legitimate <laughs> athletes out there. I mean, why do you think they yeah. struggled so? I mean, they were just they were horrific. They were horrific uh, man to man defense. It's teams. it's an interesting question. It's an interesting interesting thing to bring up, and uh, it's really something that really you can trace it back to. I guess uh, I don't know what year that was when when Duke had Austin Rivers. They had that trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it, it sort of. Ha- um, when they had uh, the next season, when uh, they went to the Elite Eight, and wound up losing to Louisville. Yeah, uh, that team that team was good defensively. But even if you go to the championship team in 2015, uh, for for the longest time, they were having they were having difficulties on defense. Yeah, I agree. Difficulties man to man, they were able to you know show zone, but um, then they went back to man, and really when it came to the tournament, they kind of you know buckled down and you know, kind of cracked their knuckles and said, hey, we're going to play man-to-man defense. Sometimes we're going to play zone, but our bread and butter is going to be our man-to-man. But So I guess I'm saying, you know, Duke's had that issue, especially in the one-and-done era, whereas um, this team specifically, I think it was um, really a lack of communication, which was really, uh, it was interesting to see because when they were in the zone, that's when they communicated their best. They realized they needed one another, and you had Grayson right there at the top, and he would be yelling, you know, screener here or rotate here and all that stuff. But 
for whatever reason it was, they weren't, um, they weren't communicating in that fashion in the man to man. And I do think it wound up coming back to hurt them because uh, it's so much easier to, to guard a three point shot when you're in, when you're in man to man defense, it's easier to guard, uh, plays in the post and it's easier and you don't have those two on one situations like I just talked about. But, um, a lot of it, I, I also think, and this is, I'm sure many people either, you know, they either will agree or won't agree, but, um, it is extremely difficult to get one and done prospects like Duke always has. And at this point, and especially coming in next season as well, uh, to buy into a defensive scheme, you know, people always talk about, you know, they say Coach K was, uh, you know, for such a tremendous defensive coach in, you know, 80s, 90s, early early 2000s, even up to 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really baffling that his teams can be so bad at defense. But if you look at those teams, you had, um, you can take, uh, let's just look at, at their championship teams. 91, you had Bobby Hurley, who was a sophomore. So it wasn't his, it wasn't his first year. You had, you know, Christian Leitner, who was, who was a junior and you had all, you had Grant Hill, who was a freshman, but came into a culture where, right. you know, you played defense or you, you didn't play at all. And, uh, you know, then the next season, you know, all, you know, you have, uh, Christian Leitner as a, as a senior and Bobby's a junior, Grant's a sophomore and they have all those guys and, they kind of, you know, laid the foundations. They were there. They were able to improve. Now, I don't think any of those guys were good, really elite defenders when they were, when they were freshmen because there's that adjustment period when you're that young. You can even look at, you know, 2001. The leader on, on the team is Shane Battier. Shane Battier is a senior. 2010, you have the three seniors. Mm-hmm. 2015 is really the, is really the difference. It's the one outlier when you have uh, one guy, Quinn Cook, who through his career wasn't a great defender. He wasn't, no, he wasn't yeah. great at, at guarding the dribble drive, but he, he had some help. And, um, uh, I think that's what, um, you know, people will, will say and people will forget that, you know, it takes time to develop into being a good college basketball player. But for the most part, uh, what takes the most time to develop is buying into a defensive scheme and realizing that, hey, you know, to be successful as a team, not just individually, you know, you have to play this sort of defense. You have to communicate in this sort of way. And you learn different things that you don't necessarily learn in only one year. And um, it's not whether or not, you know, guys bought into it or not. I do think that um, this year's team did buy into the philosophy and Coach K's defense, and then eventually buying into playing zone. It's just a matter of, you know, not every, I mean, not everyone is, is a great defender. Some guys, it takes longer to learn. I think, you know, if you had freshman Grayson out there, freshman Grayson was not a good defender at all. No, not at all. But, you know, over, over his career, he, he bought into the system, was able to play all different types. And you look, and now he, and just recently, like I said, he was the, he was the top guy on defense for them at the top of their zone. So um, it's definitely um, it's definitely interesting because they all have definitely the athletic ability to do so, to play that airtight defense. But um, they're they're 18, 19 years old. It's it's not necessarily easy to go out there day in and day out and be able to guard, you know, 21, 22 year olds. 
Yeah, I understand. I understand. I think the thing that was more puzzling for me, though, um, and, and you brought up some excellent points about the past championship teams. I, I compare this team a lot to the 2015 team. I mean, I think it's I think it's probably the most fair to, to compare it to that team as opposed to compare it to the 2010 team and and obviously the 01 and, and 92, you know, 91, 92. Um, you know, even in the 2015, I mean, you brought up that team did struggle defensively a lot throughout that throughout the course of that season. But I think it all changed once uh, once uh, Suleiman was kicked off the team. They inserted Matt Jones into the starting lineup, and then remember they put um, uh, Justice at the four. And I, th- I think that's what really had changed for yeah. that team. And 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 one of the highlights of 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 that of that year um, was Emil Jefferson and the job he did against Kaminsky in the championship game. I mean, he he just Absolutely. basically locked them down completely. Um, so I, I thought that, you know, you brought up a great example. I mean, that 2015 team wasn't the, prototypically the greatest defensive Duke team, but they, they adjusted and they made the adjustments and they became that team. I think the disappointing team, I think, the, I think that's the, the disappointing aspect of, of this year's team is that, um, they just never seemed like they just ever got it in, with the man to man concept. It just, it just, it just was really bad. I mean, it was really, I mean, it was terrible to watch. I, uh, I mean, I, um, so I guess that was the one thing that stuck out to me is just why and 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 to take it back to our to our prior conversation it's not that I felt that the zone particularly was going to cost them but I kind of had the same thought process that Kenny uh, Kenny Smith had um yeah throughout the tournament that you know he felt that in order for Duke to win a championship there was going to come a stretch for 3 to 5 minutes they were going to have to lock down and bear down and guard somebody man to man um because eventually somebody was going to adjust to that zone he didn't know when, he didn't know who, but somebody was going to be able to master that zone. And I I agreed with it. Like I I kind of yeah. agree with it. And you know, we talked about how 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 Duke was able to shuffle their defenses late, you know, especially the types of zones, but I I, I almost wanted them to shuffle between zone and man. I I I think they tried to get a little too cute with trying to disguise the different zones and I think it cost them. I really do. Yeah, it's um definitely interesting, but the one thing I did definitely want to bring up and going back to the 2015 team and obviously um you know you compare compare this team to that team and it's very very common it's it's what it's what teams do they compare mm-hmm. their current team with whatever team like you know that has championship aspirations like duke does or duke did and in, in this case but you know you compare them to the previous teams that one who could fit in this role in this role mm-hmm. um the one the one thing um is that uh I thought, the, like you said, the switch of putting Matt Jones in the starting lineup and move to have, you know, obviously they knew their bread and butter was give the ball to Jaleel in the post and let him go to work. And the thing with Jaleel is he was obviously a, a tremendous passer. Right, so yeah. by putting Matt Jones in that starting lineup, and this really uh, helped them against Gonzaga because Matt Jones had mm-hmm. his huge, huge game. Uh, four for four, I believe it was, from three. In that game, he was, he was tremendous, but... You can give the ball in the post, and no matter who Jaleel kicked it out to, if they doubled him, someone was ready to shoot and ready to knock down a three. And right. I thought that was just obviously a tremendous adjustment made by Coach K, along with going zone. But uh, from the from the defensive perspective, Duke had two real. They had two bulldogs on defense, Justice Winslow, and I think just from the bulldog mentality. They had Tyus Jones. Right. It was, it was just. I mean, Justice could guard anyone he wanted. It didn't matter 
if it were Kaminsky, if it were a point guard, it didn't matter. He was guarding them. And I think what Duke fans really need to realize is that those guys, are obviously we knew at the time they were special, but to have guys like that who from day one in the summer came in and all they wanted to do was win a national championship, that's not, that's not common. That's not, I mean, people get angry when uh, they say that, you know, college is the stepping stone to the NBA, but that's exactly what it is. And I don't think that can really be, uh, you know, I don't think anyone can say otherwise because as so long as you have a one and done rule, there are going to be those kids who should be in the NBA who are using it as the stepping stone. But right. these kids, while they did use it, and Tyus and Justice and Julio, they used it as, as a stepping stone to the NBA. While they were at Duke, they bought in completely, and they poured their hearts out because they wanted to win a national championship, and they did. And I think that was really just a big difference. And, you know, I mean, you had guys on this Duke team, obviously, that wanted to win. And you saw that when Wendell Carter fouled out, and he mm-hmm. was off the court crying, and I think there was a someone wrote something on the Athletic afterwards about uh, Trey Duval going to him and and kept nudging him, saying, "You know, hey, we got this, we got this, we got this. Don't worry." And um, they obviously wanted to win, but you know, there were times throughout the season when it didn't look it, or you know, there were some reports that came out that maybe some people weren't as fully engaged as others. And I think that's just the the reality of of the situation and. I think that's the reason when you look at the 2015 team that um, it's definitely something that you have to, it should be, honestly, I think it's the first thing that should come to mind is that those kids, all they wanted to do was win. And and that's what they did. I agree completely. Um, So just to kind of recap, you know, do you look at this season as a disappointment? Because um, I know that's another kind of debate that's been had among the Duke fan fandom community, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, how do you look back on this season? I know some people tend to look at it as, you know, they got to an elite eight. If if we're being fair, they were a, basically a an eyelash away from being in a Final Four. You look back at this, you know. You look back at this season, and it's a success, blah blah blah. Or you're, or you're more like me. I I wouldn't say cynical, but just feel kind of disappointed in that you know this this kind of was a championship or bust type of year. I mean, where do you stand on this season? Like, how will you look back on this season? I know it's kind of, I know it's still recent. I mean, you know, the game was on yeah. Sunday, so. <laughs> kind of hard to uh, say look back but where do you where do you, do you do you do you view this season as a disappointment i think it's it's definitely an interesting thing to bring up because uh and i'm gonna segue into another thing that i actually was thinking about before uh before we called and before we started doing this mm. um i do personally view it as a disappointment uh you have the best player in college basketball and marvin bagley you have Wendell Carter Jr., who was arguably the, the third, second or third best big man. If you, obviously, DeAndre Ayton is up there as one or two, so he's right. He's right there behind him. Right. You have Grayson Allen, who was, I believe, an honorable mention for uh, for an All American. You have Gary Trent Jr. You had Trey Duval, who was the number one point guard coming out of 
coming out of high school and coming off the bench, there are big expectations for Javin. Uh, Marquise Bolden was, uh, personally, he was phenomenal this year. I, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, he impressed I me. Yep. Beyond all, all extent that he stays for next season because that, I mean, he would be, I, I think, the perfect five absolutely. for that team. Absolutely. But, I agree with you. Um, to answer your question, absolutely. Even O'Connell, even O'Connell in the in the limited, he was the one guy that yeah. I was that I I was disappointed in. And Coach K didn't, and obviously Coach K knows more about his team than than we'll ever know. Obviously, but of course, of course. <laughs> of course right? Yeah, but um, you know, even O'Connell, I was disappointed that he. I mean, the little bit of time that he did get in these games, he always made a play, and I, and I love that about him. Like he yeah. always contributed positive minutes. It was never. You know, you know, and Javin, you know, as the season went on, got better and became a big contributor. So I agree. I, I, all three guys are, are three main reserves, um, not counting Jack White. And even Jack at, at times had great moments. You know, I, I thought that yeah. this team was deeper than I think the perception was. Uh, I, I definitely do agree. And I mean, uh, the way that Duke would, would play their uh, would play their bench guys, really, it would be, you know, you could have Marquise come in for Wendell, and then you could have Wendell come in for Marvin, and so that way they wouldn't, they would kind of stagger it that way, which makes sense to me because I look, I mean, we all knew this when Duke recruited Antonio Vrankovic, and it's absolutely nothing against him, but he knew when he was a you know three star, four star recruit, he wasn't gonna, he wasn't gonna get big minutes, he wasn't really gonna play all that much at Duke. And, I think it was a bit unfair when Duke got him to immediately compare him to Brian Zubek mm-hmm. because, I mean, frankly, you know, he's a to put it to put it loosely, you know, not he, he was a seven foot he's a seven foot white guy, and that's <laughs> the first thing everyone thinks of. They're like, hey, you know, he's he could be Brian Zubek come his senior year, and you know, right. this year, junior year, I think it would be unfair not to put him into a situation that he wasn't ready for, and. Clearly, I mean, like, whenever I give my opinion and people, you know, at different times will, will come at you and say this and this and, right. and whatever and say, you know, you know, you don't believe in Coach K and that's, that's not, that's the furthest thing from the truth, obviously. But, um, you know, we each have different opinions on what we should be doing. Early in the season, I was screaming for them to play consistently zone. And then, of course, you always get people saying, you know, hey, you know, Coach K knows what he's doing. They need to play man, blah, blah, blah. And that's fine. You know, we each have our different opinions. It doesn't mean that I'm saying, you know, I should be the next head coach of, of Duke men's basketball once, once Coach K retires. It just means that, you know, I watch the game in a certain way and see certain things. And uh, that, and those are my opinions. But getting back to uh, getting back to your question, it, the season, it absolutely is a disappointment. It's a, it's a great achievement to get to the Elite Eight. That I no one no one's questioning that I don't think anyone would refute that, but when you have arguably the most talented roster that you know Duke basketball's really ever seen, and I'll be completely honest, I, I seriously do believe that that starting five would rival any starting five that Duke has ever put out there. I agree. I with mean, you. you look, I I love obviously watching the highlights of of Christian Leitner. That's awesome, but if you you know, put Christian Leitner up against Marvin Bagley. I'm picking Marvin Bagley every day. Absolutely. Bobby Hurley was a tremendous defender, but when Trey Duval was on his game, he no one in America could guard him. It was it, Gary Gary Trent Jr. is an, an elite shooter. It all those things 
were there. Duke had every piece to win the national title. And, frankly, they weren't able to defend enough, and they came a couple plays short of getting to the Final Four and still playing. But with that said, um, this was what I was alluding to earlier. Uh, Obviously, Duke's recruiting class going into next season is nothing short of, of phenomenal, spectacular. It's it's unbelievable. I was in Durham when Zion Williamson announced he was coming to Duke and the place was going nuts. Yeah. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I love love the guys already. You love being able to have RJ Barrett, Cam Reddish, Trey Jones, Zion Williamson, um, potentially uh, EJ Montgomery if he if he chooses to come to Duke. But at mm-hmm. the end of the day, um it's unfair for Duke fans to proclaim national championship or bust simply because of the recruiting class. And you watch the, all these highlights. Um, you know, you, you can, I can watch Zion dunk all day. You can watch what, um, what RJ Barrett just did in the McDonald's all American game because he was absolutely phenomenal. Best player on the court. Oh, it wasn't even, it wasn't even close. It was, it was phenomenal. And you can trade Jones, whatever, but, when these guys all get on the court together, the only thing that matters to me is how they play defense. Absolutely. If they can't play defense, we've seen what, what can happen. We, we see that, you know, they won't be able to succeed. So I do think it's it's unfair to, before a season starts, say national championship or bust. So I guess my little PSA here for, <laughs> for Duke fans and, for everyone saying, you know, because it's it's so easy to look at the rankings and say, you know, on 247 Sports, Duke has four of the top ten guys coming in. Really, you know, they have three small forwards, but I'll include uh, Zion as being a power forward because he's got he's got a perfect build to be a college four. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have potentially Marquise Bolden at the five, Trey Jones at the one, and fill everyone else in there. And it's tough to say how can this team not be successful, but you know, really everything we, we see, we've seen about these kids is that they're elite offensive players. But if you go online, you try to find, you know, videos of them playing defense. I mean, if you can find them, give me a call because I, before I, I write articles and do podcasts, I try to, you know, do as much research on these kids as on these kids as I can. And frankly, it's, it's extremely difficult to find defensive highlights because no one, because when you're making a mixtape of a guy, no one's going to say, Oh, look at, Look at the way he right. catches off that, right, yeah. off, you know, off the pick and roll, and and look at how he defends the pick and roll or stays in front of his man. That's not that's not what people want to watch. They want to watch Zion put the ball between his legs and finish at the rim in in a in the middle of a game, and that's understandable. But uh, I think it'd be unfair to say national championship or bust until um, un- until they get on the court. We can see what they can do defensively, but. Just to reiterate, absolutely, this season was a disappointment. This was a national championship caliber team that uh, really came up a couple plays short of the Final Four. Absolutely. I mean, I, again, I, I can't disagree with anything you said. Um, I, I think I, I think for me, I, I say national championship or bust I, in, in, only in, in, in the term that, you know, this, this was a national championship caliber team. I mean, absolutely. I don't think anybody can watch that team and say this, this team doesn't have an opportunity or shouldn't at the very least. I think, I think had they gotten to a final four and lost, I think, 
I think most, the majority of Duke fans, I think would say, okay, you know what? We got to the final dance and it just, you know, you lose a close game to Villanova. I don't think anybody's really complaining. I, I, I do think the loss in the Elite Eight, because I also, also I think what contributes to this is I, I think we're better than Kansas. I, I think Duke was the more talented team. I just think that Kansas oh, without, made it. Without a doubt. Absolutely. Without yeah. A doubt they were better. Right. And, and, and that's the way in sports. I mean, you know, in sports, you play these games long enough, you know, the talent, the most talented team is not always going to win. And that's the charm of the NCAA tournament. I mean, you know, you could be the greatest team ever. And, you know, for one game, you run, you, you know, you run across a hot team and you're going to lose. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, it's just the way the ball bounces. Um, I, I, if you ask me, I compare this team a lot to the 99 Duke team because before this year, I thought that that was the most talented Duke team that had ever been put on the court. Um, in my opinion. Yeah, I love that comparison. And that team only lost one game. Remember, that team just yeah. dominated through the regular season. Um, and, and I compare this team a lot to that team. I think what makes this team a little bit more disappointing in my eyes is that, you know, when you really look at it, this team didn't win a conference regular season title. They didn't really win a, you know, they didn't win a, a tournament title. So there's, there's really no real accolade to put behind this team. Even last year's team, which was, disappointing but for for very different reasons you know that team had an incredible run in brooklyn you know a five days in brooklyn that was extremely memorable and unforgettable you know so they had that so that was a that was your one kind of snapshot of that season you could say okay well they had that amazing run in brooklyn you know this team you know they didn't really have that you know i i I still don't get how they lost in north carolina two out of three when i kind of felt like we were the better team every single time and they, they absolutely were. And, you know, and, and I just kind of felt like we just played down to teams this year. You know, I just, it, it, you know, and, and that tends to happen a lot. I mean, we're always, everybody knows Duke gets everybody's best shot on a nightly basis. We understand that. But it just kind of felt like this year, just games that we should have easily won, we lost. And, and, and it wasn't because necessarily that team just played out of its mind. I just thought we played down to competition. So I think that was the I think those are the two things that I kind of take out of this season, just the disappointment and that it wasn't an accolade filled team. You know, they didn't have a regular season championship. They didn't have a conference championship. So I think that's what's going to kind of scar a lot of Duke fans when they look back at this team, you know, decades from now, I guess, Um, you know, that this team really didn't really accomplish a lot when you look at the resume comparative to what they should have. No, you're you're exactly correct. I think it's. um it's a fair thing to say. And if, you know, you look at, uh, you know, these guys' careers, you look at Quinn Cook going into his senior year, what was the the one thing that really everyone brought up and brought up to him and, and about him was uh, since he came in, he hadn't won an ACC regular season title. Right. He hadn't won an ACC tournament title and he hadn't won a national championship going into his senior year. And that was the, that was the big thing. And, you know, Duke didn't win the regular season that year. They got bounced by uh, Notre Dame in, in the ACC tournament, but then were able to, you know, go on a go on a great stretch and, and win the title game. But I do think I I loved what you said that how you know it's the it's the nature of of the of the tournament that the best team doesn't always win, and I think I, I do think that's what. Uh, people love about it so much that's why people love even you know you look at the nfl it, both both things are are a uh, one game scenario right and anything can happen in, in that one game scenario if it were different if it were more baseball hockey 
NBA kind of thing. Um, I do personally feel that the best teams usually win. If you look last year in the World Series, the Houston Astros were, to me, the best team in baseball. They had the most talent. They had pitching. They had everything. Mm-hmm. You, Golden State Warriors, uh, even this year, I still think, although I do have to say, I do think Houston will give them a, a very good run for their money. But if I were picking right now, I st- if Steph comes back fully healthy and everything's fine, I think they win the title, and that happened last year. Right. Hockey, you know, the, Peng- the Penguins went on a, an unbelievable run. They played tremendous, and they played tremendous in the playoffs, and arguably in a seven-game series, the best team is going to win. That's generally what happens, but you look at these one-game scenarios, like, if Duke played Kansas, I don't know, five, four or five times, do I think Duke beats them enough to, to advance and win, you know, in a five-game series, at least three games to two? Absolutely, but the beauty of the tournament and the fact that and the, the fact that it makes it so difficult to to win titles and the fact that Coach K has five is the fact that, you know, you're off for one night, one thing goes wrong, one player gets injured, and, and you're back home waiting for the next season. It's, it's truly tremendous. And all you have to look at there is just look at uh, UVA. And yeah. not even just this no. year losing to UMBC, but... In past years, when you know every year they're a, they're an elite uh, regular season team, which I know is sort of a backhanded compliment, but they're an elite regular season team. They're able. I mean, what do they have? Two losses in the regular season this year. Yeah, playing playing elite defense. You know, not obviously. I didn't have them going too far simply because I think when it comes down to March. You need to be able to put the ball in the hole. You need to be able to score, and they frankly just didn't do it enough. Obviously, I didn't see them losing in the in the first round to a 16 seed, but right. Um, you know, you, you, it just shows how how really difficult it is to win in in a scenario where you know you have to win six straight games and you're not allowed to lose one. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a that's a hell of a point. Absolutely, I, I can't disagree more. I can't agree more, should I say. Um, uh, so kind of to wrap this up as far as the Duke conversation, um, so where do you see – you know, you watch these guys a lot as I did. You know, what do you what do you see the trajectory of the of the careers of these these four guys? Um, you know, I, I, I will say that out of the one disappointment of this season, I, I was a little disappointed with, Tra- with Trayvon du- Duval. Um, I, I, I kind of felt like he was the biggest disappointment of the, of the, of the big four. Um, it just kind of felt like he was consistently inconsistent this year. You know, he had moments where he was tremendous, and then he had moments where you're just like, you know, what the f are you doing? You know, and it's just, it's, it's just, it, it, he was, yeah, that's the best way I could put it. I mean, it was just like, is, what you know, he was, he was. Absolutely. I think I, I personally have to agree with you. Like you said, to to wrap this up, and I'm assuming, uh, you know, their their trajectories for their NBA career. Right. Um, right. It's it's interesting, and uh, the one thing I would like to preface this with is there's only one somewhat of a question mark, and that's Gary Trent Jr., whether or not he's going to stay or leave. Personally, I think that he's going to leave. He, he had a tremendous season. He's He's got the physical build to, to play in the NBA. He can shoot. He can pass. He can drive the ball. He's got a great mid-range game. He can finish around the basket, but... 
Not projected oh, highly, though. At least if you look at some of the mock drafts, he's not exactly. I think he's yes. predicted like yeah. right, like right at the end of the lottery or like right outside of it. I mean, obviously we're in we're in late March, you know, April, so a lot of things can change from now to June. So, but right now, I don't think he's predicted highly. So I think that might kind of sway his opinion. I, mean, I agree with you. I think I think they all go, but you know, Gary is kind of the one guy that you could see maybe staying. Right, and um, like and. You know, to that point, uh, there have been, you know, you look at all the different mock drafts and, and whatnot, and uh, there's there's some that have them, you know, late first round. Well, a lot of them have them, you know, some have them around the end of the lottery, some have them late first round, some have him not in the first round. Yeah, I don't understand and, those. I'm mean, like, whoa. And yeah. I, think, I think what we will see is, uh, I, personally, I think he'll declare for the draft but not sign with an agent. Mm-hmm. Get get the feedback. See see what they're saying, and uh, it you know if he if they if he gets the answer that that he likes, and I'm assuming that would be guaranteed first round or around lottery to the early twenties, mid twenties. I do think he leaves, and but to to get to your question, uh, I personally, I, I what Marvin Pagley did this season was. Was unbelievable. Something that I mean, th- there wasn't a time, you know. Duke's gotten some unbelievable recruits. You know, watching Jason Tatum play was was great. Right. Watching, you know, Jaleel and Tyus and Justice, all those guys. Kyrie. You know, Kyrie for the eleven you know, games, anyway. <laughs> you know, yeah, for the eleven games, and you know, Austin Rivers. Watching him, I mean, the way he was able to score the ball with ease was was great to watch. But there was no one that I sat there and watched, and I was like, I can't believe this guy's in a Duke uniform. And I'm able to watch him play like like it was with Marvin Bagley. But with that said, I would not be surprised if Wendell Carter Jr. had either a better NBA career really? or a similar wow. NBA career with regards to points and rebounds than with Marvin Bagley. I think Wendell's game is suited beautifully for the NBA. He has a Beautiful three-point shot. He he showed that he could hit the mid-range. He's a better. I think he's a better rebounder than Bagley is. Bagley relies solely on his athleticism, which is you know through the roof. Don't don't get me wrong. But Wendell's positioning, the way he was able to play defense, he wasn't. He's extremely athletic, but his timing on blocks, his positioning, I thought was mm-hmm. absolutely tremendous and. Uh, he has more polished post moves that you can go with either hand. Mm-hmm. I do think. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't, I don't think we saw um, Marvin Bagley use his right hand outside of dribbling once this year to finish around the basket. I can't honestly remember it. Even when he would go right, he would come back and finish with his left. But obviously, with that said, I think Marvin Bagley is going to be an unbelievable NBA player. But I wouldn't be surprised to see Wendell Carter enjoy similar success the only thing uh, that the only thing i not to cut you off I'm, i didn't mean to cut you off yeah, but, no, no, uh, you're good, you're good. uh the only thing i would disagree with the with the wendell and the marvin comparisons is i i think marvin has more of the alpha dog presence I, you know the, the, one of the things that bothered me with wendell this yes. year was that and i don't know if it was by design or whether he was just kind of taking a back seat to marvin but there were times where I thought that he could have taken over games and he just could have dominated games if he wanted to, and he didn't. And I felt like Marvin has more of that kind of alpha dog, like give me the ball, get the hell out of my way, I'm going to score on anybody. Like when he really – and it always kind of felt like 
you were waiting for that out of Wendell that and it never I mean you had, he had his moments and he had his 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 time when he did that but you know through a course of a you know what 30 32 game regular season it those were times where those were few and far in between and I, I think that's my only criticism with Wendell is that I don't see that like alpha dog mentality and I think that's a a lot of that has to and that that's an that's an that's a variable that I think a lot of people don't talk about when they talk about guys and evaluating them in the NBA especially when you're talking about lottery picks guys that are going to go in the top you know five to seven picks in the draft as these two are predicted um you know are are these do they have that that takeover ability and that, and that's 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 the one thing that i that i'm still looking to see out of Wendell. and, and maybe he'll develop it maybe you know he gets to an nba team and he's the guy and you know maybe he'll develop that I, you know but i think at duke sometimes i think he was kind of i don't know if he was going i don't i don't want to say content but i think he was more than willing to kind of play second fiddle to marvin bagley i think that's a tremendous point and i agree with you with uh what you're saying about NBA scouts and how, you know, they don't, they may not necessarily look for that and they instead look for the raw talent, which right. obviously they're, they're in a scenario where, you know, you accumulate, or most teams, you know, try to accumulate the best talent and whatever their reasoning may be. But um, that's a terrific point. I absolutely agree with you that Bagley was, and he showed it against UNC, get me the ball, get out of the way. I'm get, just everyone just jump on my back. I got you guys. Don't worry. And I think that goes a long way. I think it it's extremely interesting. It'll be interesting to see where they end up. And I think the upside too. Um, yeah. Go ahead. And I, sorry, sorry to me to cut you off again. Uh, I think the upside also plays into it because you know, I, you know, I, I think. Of course. I think different than the NFL where I think upside and what you see right now, I think it's all a combination. I think in the NBA, I think they draft specifically on upside. I think they want to see – like, you know, I think GMs are going to look at Wendell and they're say, yeah, right now he's probably more polished offensively. But, you know, in five years, what's Marvin Bagley going to be? I mean, he's – you know, he's – he's you know, I mean – Give us, give us Marvin Bagley, and in five years we're going to make it. You know, I, I think that's their mentality. So I think that's going to hurt them a little bit in that they kind of they might view Wendell more as a more finished product right now as opposed to Bagley. Um, so I think that might play into it. But I agree with you. I I I, I was a huge fan of Wendell this year, and I'm and I was more disappointed that he didn't assert himself more in games and didn't kind of be because I thought at times even even. With Bagley on the court, I thought sometimes he was the best player on the court, and um, yeah. it was disappointing that he, you know, he did play second fiddle to. And plus, I think also I think you know Bagley has more of the flashy style, the flashy game, yes. the leaping ability, while Wendell's more of your traditional, you know, back to the basket, big, you know, in, in that general sense, kind of a more bigger, lumbering type of guy. So I think yeah. that that kind of hurt his hurt his appeal to some Duke fans, but. Um, do you, I, I don't know if you got to see Aiton much, but what's your – what's No, I, I've been constantly watching these two all year because the, the, these have been the two guys that have been primarily – I know Porter at the beginning of the year before he got hurt was were, – yeah. were, were guys mentioned as top picks. But um, I was watching Bagley and Aiton and I got into a lot of debates with a lot of friends of mine and people that listen and, and, and whatnot. I, I think – I love Aiton, but Bagley is Bagley's on another level, in my opinion. I, I, I just think, I just think Bagley right now. If I was an, if I was a GM, I, I would, I would take Bagley in a heartbeat. Um, well, 
Well, obviously, I've watched it. And, I, and I know it's a little biased because I'm a Duke fan. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've watched a lot more of um, of Marvin Bagley than I have of of uh, DeAndre Ayton. But solely from, from what I've seen, what I've heard, I understand why uh, NBA scouts and people are saying, you know, Ayton's going to go number one. I Because I think, honestly, Marvin more it, it, Marvin's probably more athletic than Aiton is. Aiton is is still a tremendous athlete, but w- watching uh, Bagley play and, and and then watching Aiton, uh, they're extremely similar players. They are in yeah. that you know you know you put Aiton in the post and it's almost like you know you can you could put the points up on the board. It's over. And Aiton's got a beautiful jump shot that is uh, you know very consistent. He's able to knock it down. A, very easily, honestly, and you know that was that was sort of the knock a bit on on Bagley was you know like oh he's not a great three point shooter. Well, I he shot a very I can't I don't know exactly his percentage this year, but I know he shot a good percentage. He shot a high percentage around the basket. I think really what they're looking at here, and it goes to what we talked about kind of with with Wendell and, and the polish. Mm-hmm. But I think this is more of a of a bod- a bodily polish. And that you look at DeAndre Ayton and you see how, you know, he's unbelievably built. He's in unbelievable shape. Yeah, I mean, he's a 19-year-old kid that looks like a, like a 28-year-old. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's sick. It's, he, he's the closest I've seen probably, you know, I guess you could say uh, a current Bismack Biombo or someone like that where – Broad shoulders, kind of looks like a Dwight Howard out there. Yeah, that's and a that's a that's a hell of a comparison. Just, you know, yep. from like you know the, from eye purposes, looking at it. So I, you look at them similar skill sets. So, uh, again, with Bagley being more athletic, I think it makes a ton of sense to me that teams are saying, you know, hey, this guy is it. He's the full package. He does everything Bagley does. Plus, he's got all of this you know weight and, and strength to him. I get it personally. Obviously, I take Bagley because I think what he does on the court is unbelievable. But I, I get I think Aiden has him beat on defense, and that's honestly that was Bagley's biggest knock this year. Is he wasn't a he was not a good defender. No, he was not. Yeah. yeah, but um, you know, if you're going by by that, I guess you could say I I understand why Aiden I think will go number one, but um. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, you, we look later on and say, well, you know, I would have taken Bagley in that situation. And the, one thing about, and the one thing about Marvin that I was impressed with, he was able to dominate without really getting a lot of touches, without really getting a lot of plays ran for him. And that's the interesting part. I mean, I, I, I didn't watch Arizona enough to really understand the dichotomy of how many plays, you know, DeAndre Ayton got ran for him as opposed to some, you know, Trier or some of the other guys. But – um, I, I think I think you would find it interesting that I would think I would I would I would guess that Aiton probably got more touches and more plays ran for him than Bagley did at Duke, and the fact that he was able to really get his and dominate not just score but dominate offensively without really getting plays ran for him without really getting touches a lot I mean that to me is the scary part about Bagley that I think his game is still developing like that's the scary part that's that's for you. That's scary to think because he's, I mean, you look and, I mean, Jay Bills and all that talks about his ability to get offensive rebounds. His second jump after missing a shot was second to literally none. 
I don't know if even in the NBA, who has a better second jump than he does. I can't think of anyone. Yeah. He's simply uh, tremendous, but sort of, you know, getting back to your original, your first point and, um, you know, where I think these guys were going to, were going to be come in their NBA careers, just to sort of finish that off. Uh, I think Gary, Gary Trent's going to be a really, really solid NBA player. You know, I agree. he's your, he's your three and D guy. Yeah. He plays, he, he knocks down threes, but he, obviously he's a m- much more than that. But if you, by getting to the basket, and like I said, his mid range game, when he missed a mid range shot, I was frankly, I was frankly surprised when he did because he was so unbelievably consistent. And he had that, that little range. floater too, that little floater in the lane. That, yeah, that the was floater he yep. had. Um, and then the way he was able to play defense, you know, lock down defense, you know, early on in the season, he got big stops, but I think he'll be a really, really solid, really good NBA player. And the one that's sort of the toss up is, is Trey Duval because he has all of the physical abilities. He has, he has lightning quick speed. He, you know, has some trouble finishing around the basket. There were times when he finished around the basket. It was simply spectacular right he would take you know you know big dunks or finishing you know with a little english up on the glass and in you know who he reminds me of you know who he reminds me of and and obviously he's not as dynamic as this guy or as just ferocious as this guy but he reminds me of a lesser westbrook in college Mm. You know, that's what he reminds me of. Now, I'm not saying he's going to be Russell Westbrook, obviously. Of course not. Um, right. But, I mean, he's if you if you go back and you study Russell Westbrook and you study Trevin Tra- – I always mispronounce I want to call him Trevin, call him Trayvon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you go back and analyze Westbrook and then you look at Duvall, I mean, their games are similar. I mean, they have, I think, similar – obviously, Westbrook's just light years. I mean, I had, you know – Offensively and and athletically, I think Westbrook's light light years ahead, but not by much. I mean, Duvall is Duvall is athletic as hell, and I, I just I he's boomer bust for me because I I agree with you. I, he's he's a toss up. I, I think it depends on where he goes, um, and how his development goes. Because I mean, I, I think he's I think he has a chance to be better than than all of these guys in the NBA if he develops the way that I think he can. I think he has a chance to really be a phenomenal talent in the league. It's just a matter of improve. He has to improve his jump shot. That is the one thing for him. That he absolutely – yep. There, Go ahead. there are two yeah. things for me that Trey, if he's to become – he can become an all-star NBA point guard. Absolutely. I completely agree. Has, it's his decision-making yep. for number one because – there were times when he was out there and he threw passes that you were like, oh my God, that is, you know, one of the most beautiful passes, the way he thread the needle. How did he find that? Man, that was amazing. To throwing a lob from, you know, mm-hmm. to someone that hits off, you know, the top corner of the backboard. Right. And you're like, you know, what the hell are you doing? Like, what is this? Um, so if he shares that up and I, that, I do think that'll come with experience and obviously playing with an NBA coaching staff or wherever he winds up and, the second one, like you said, it's his shooting ability. He showed in the tournament, hey, you know what? I know he doesn't have a reputation as being a great shooter, and he had the eye troubles and all that stuff, but um, if he's able to knock down jump shots, and you saw this, I, I said early on in the season, I said all along, you know, if you have, um, you know, his prototype should be John Wall, in that in his uh, college, yeah. college game, yep. he, had, he had no jump shot whatsoever to, to now where 
if you leave him open, if you give him, you know, a couple inches, he's going to pull up for a three. Yeah. And that's the way John Wall is now. I think Trey has a trajectory that could intersect that of, of John Wall, but also, you know, if you look at it, uh, the only reason this name's coming up is because I've seen it recently. You know, you don't want it to, but it could be a Johnny Flynn type of situation yeah. where nothing really amounts. But obviously, we hope for the best that he has all the all the physical gifts to be great. But uh, but yeah, it's, he's definitely a boomer bust guy. I like that you said that. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, let's transition before we transition over to baseball really quick. Um, got a Final Four prediction for me? I know it sucks that we're not in it, but. Uh, still got to talk about the final four. So, you know, just give me your final four pick. You know, what do you, what do you, next Monday, come this time, Monday night, uh, who do you see hoisting up that trophy? Well, I think in, uh, in a Villanova, Kansas matchup, I have Villanova because, um, if Duke were to be able to play defense in a man to man, that's how I'd want them to play. Mm -hmm. Obviously, other than like the, the UVA type of defense. Their, their defense still allows for them to play consistently well offense and, you know, having a guy like Jalen Brunson and, you know, Mikhail Bridges and all those guys, they're, they're unbelievable. I do think that they'll wind up beating Kansas and boy, that, <laughs> the other side of the bracket between, I, I had, um, I had Michigan in my final four. I had Villanova and I had, uh, Duke and Arizona, but, you know, Arizona, I did too, man. I did too, man. I know. I did too, man. I had the exact um, same Final Four. Yeah, kind of. I kind of bought into the hype there, but um, you know, Loyola Chicago against Michigan matchup, boy. That is a toss-up. I, I, you know, people are saying that it's. I think Michigan's favored by five points or whatever. I think that's the spread. Uh, that's yeah. a that's a toss-up game. I, I Loyola's good, and I've come and I and I've been slow to the Loyola, the Loyola train. I, I was like, okay, nice little team. But that team is yeah. good. That team is that a team. really, really good team. And it's uh, – my dad said this to me, and I thought – he was like, you know, they're a great team. And he said they're, they're that. He's like, they're a team. That's what yep. they – they have They have some big-time players on that team. Some some guys who have won state, won state championships in high school. Um, but, boy, what John Beeline has – he I don't know if there's a coach – that gets his guys ready for March, at least in recent years, better than John Beeline. I agree. Because Michigan has been un- unbelievable. And, I mean, Wagner down there in the post and outside for three. Um, I think it's it poses an interesting matchup, but if you're putting me on the spot, oh, man. Uh, I mean, I'll have to – I think I'll go with Loyola Chicago, but I think that at the end of the day it'll be, a, it'll be Villanova – Hoisting the the title for what what would that be second time in three years? Second time in three years, yeah. Second that Jay Wright, Jay Wright. I'll tell you what, I've I've come around on Jay Wright. I've come around on Jay Wright because I used to kill Jay Wright. You know, even before I had a even before even before I had a podcast, I I I used to kill Jay Wright because I was like, man, this guy for all the accolades in the regular season, he never does anything in the tournament, and. You know, if, if he does it this year, that's two and three. That's two and three years. So I got to shut the hell up. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. Before before they won that first title, if there was ever an upset pick, I was always taking Villanova. Because yeah, because they, they absolutely weren't the team that could get it done in the uh, in the tournament. But he quickly turned that around. And if you look at the guys he's recruited, like obviously he has some 
great college players right now, but I mean, before he went to Villanova, I don't know, I personally didn't know who Dante DiVincenzo was, and now he's a, you know, yeah. unbelievably athletic guy, and even if you look, he, Jay Wright's not getting, you know, top 10, top 15 type recruits, you know, right. his guys are, are later, later on there, and he gets guys that fit into his system, and he makes it work, but at the end of the day, I I would not be surprised, and it, frankly, at this point, is my prediction that uh, Villanova will have two in the last three years. Um, if I had to give you my prediction, um, you know, as much as I like Villanova, I, I just got a funny feeling that Kansas is going to do it this year. I, I just, oh, wow. you know, I'm a big believer in, and, and I don't know, maybe you call me corny, whatever, but I'm, I'm a big believer in momentum in sports. And I, I just oh, think gosh. that, I just think, especially in, in, a, in a tournament like this, and I just feel like Kansas, they beat Duke in an emotional game. I got a fun, I, I think Kansas is going to be tough to beat from here on out. I, I just think Kansas, I would, I would not be shocked if they beat Villanova. I, I think smart money is to pick Villanova, but. Yeah. I just got a funny feeling about Kansas. I, you know, when you see these teams that kind of get over that hump and the hump for Kansas was, you know, they got to the Elite Eight three straight years. They, you know, Kansas, you know, Kansas was in a lot of ways the new Villanova, you know, a team that would always lose in upset picks. I, I've, I've killed Bill Self for years that he's, you know, he's, you know, oh, he's, yeah. he's overrated, you know, for all the talent that he's had at you know, Kansas. He's never been able to win more than one national championship, blah, blah, blah. And the one national championship he won, you know, lucky, blah, blah, blah. I, I've I've ripped him to shreds all these years. That being said, I like teams that get over a hump. I like teams that kind of that that break a, a streak or a curse or get the monkey off the back to use the sports cliche, whatever you want to say. Um, and I just think Kansas is going to come into this game. They have nothing to lose. They 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 slayed their dragon. They slayed their demon. I think they're going to be underdogs against Villanova. Everybody's going to be talking about how Villanova is the best team. Blah blah blah. And I think Kansas is going to come in there. And I think they're going to be similar to Duke. I think they're going to shoot their threes. I think they'll play better offensively this game. I almost think that Kansas is – I think Villanova is almost a better matchup for them than I think even Duke was. Um, and I just I, – I again, if, if you're asking me to bet, Villanova all the way. But I, I just have a funny feeling that Kansas is going to play that game on Monday night. And then as far as Loyola and Michigan, I mean, you know, again, smart money, Michigan um, – but Michigan hasn't played well this tournament. Like they just real outside of that Texas A and M game, I, I have not been impressed with Michigan, and I picked them to be in the final. I actually picked a Duke Michigan fi- uh, final, and I just have not. I, so, yeah. I, I I've just haven't been impressed with Michigan. I, I just they I feel like they've they just haven't played well. They haven't been off- offensively. They just haven't played well. I, you know, I don't know. Sometimes that comes back to bite you. You know, if you, you you know, they've been lucky to win a lot of the games they won. I, I thought they were lucky to win that Florida State game. I mean, if Florida State was was even competent offensively, I thought Michigan could have lost that game. <laughs> you know, I thought Michigan could have lost that game, and they they should have lost to Houston. So, I I just think I I think we're gonna see a Loyola and a Kansas final on Monday night. I I, I just I I think you're gonna see the ultimate Cinderella versus the ultimate blue blood on Sunday on Monday night. I really do. I think, and then selfishly, I kind of want that for you know the ratings and the the storyline aspect of it because I think that if you get that, I think that's going to rival the Duke Butler final of a few years ago. Um, and I and I just I got can't I just again I just I just got a funny feeling you know that, that also they're playing up the the storyline of you know Kansas is back in San Antonio where they won the final four in 08. 
You know, I, I just, you know, sometimes in sports, you know, stuff like this, you know, it, it just, I don't know. Don't, don't be surprised. That's all I'm saying. Don't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think they have what the 15 Duke team had. And I think Devontae Graham's their Quinn Cook. I, I, I think that's, I mean, just that, that senior guy right there. And Newman's their X factor. If Newman plays oh, like that, oh my no, God. No, you know, people forget Newman was a, Newman was a five star recruit. You know, people forget Newman that about a, Newman. Newman was a one and done. He was supposed to be a one and done at Mississippi State. Yeah. Was couldn't get it done. And this is where I have so much so much respect for him. And how many kids would have left and, and gone just just left for the draft no matter what. Absolutely. He instead stayed you know trans- or transferred. transferred. Yeah. Takes a year off and right now, you know, obviously people like these, you know, draft prospects and over in the, the draft scouts and for the M- for the NBA teams, what they like to see is you know a guy with this potential who's you know eighteen, nineteen years old. Right. He re- he realized you know I didn't have a good year, I didn't play the way I can, so he bet on himself by skipping or by transferring, missing a year, and then right now in his what should be his age junior season, right, playing. Probably the best basketball he's ever played, and he's gonna. And it's gonna pan out for him, and I mean, in maybe what lottery, lottery pick, late, late first round. Yeah, absolutely, worst, absolutely at worst. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's yeah, he's an X, he's an X factor for them. He's definitely an X factor for them. Absolutely. Oh well, well you know, tomorrow is opening day, so just to transition, uh, our Mets uh, are opening up first time in really since nineteen. Matter of fact, the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated. Fun fact. Uh, first time in history, only the second time in history that all thirty teams will play on on opening day. Uh, well, well, it. I, I, sorry, I have to say the Nationals and the Reds was rained out, so that that kind of got axed. But it would have been the first, only the second time since nineteen sixty eight that uh, all thirty teams would play on opening day. Um, but the Nationals, it was just announced earlier, I believe, Nats and the Reds tomorrow was uh, rained out. So were, were they really? Yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They were just yes, raining. No, I'm at I'm at uh, I'm at George Mason, so I'm I'm about 35, 40 minutes from DC. I'm actually gonna go into the uh, the Met games when they come to town. And okay, cool. That, and the way that um they they work around here when it comes to snow and rain doesn't surprise me in the least. <laughs> yeah, I I was I, I think it came down like not too long ago before we got wow. on that they had rained that game out. So yeah, they're gonna play it on Friday. So I, I I tried to be all cool with a fun little fact, and then I thought about it. I was like, oh shit, you know, <laughs> they got rained out. Uh, but yeah, so it's the start of uh it's start of baseball season uh tomorrow, and and before we get into our team, the Mets. Um, you know, just just a quick synopsis of the off season because everybody's had an, an an opinion on this on this crazy, not so crazy off season with all these players not being able to get contracts. What what's been your thought on this off season? You know, this 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 new age off the analytical off season as they're calling it, where you know, do you think it's an anomaly or do you think it's it's a sign of things to come? What's been your thought process? As you, as you, me, all of us have watched this offseason play out um, with the lack of free agent activity? Uh, I think it's a sign of things to come. Really? Absolutely. I mean, well, I don't think it'll necessarily be indicative in next year's uh, free agency when you have, you know, the Machados and the Bryce Harpers and, and uh, potentially Clayton Kershaw, guys like that, because, frankly, they're worth – those huge contracts and they've 
they've played their careers and, and so far in their careers, they have proven that they're worth those big numbers. But, you know, with, um, the analytics and really everyone having the access to the exact same information, like obviously the uh, uh, Moneyball and Billy Bean, he really used on base percentage and all that kind of stuff and scoring X amount of runs and getting on base, whatever it was. He, he used it to his advantage because at the time, nobody else believed in that. No one else, someone, they saw, you know, a two, a 250 hitter and that was it. Meanwhile, it could be a 250 hitter who has like a 370 on base and he saw value in that. But now every general manager, every team is seeing the same value that he saw. So by looking at those numbers, they're able to come up with, you know, what certain players are worth and they're all coming to roughly the same number. And it's frankly not the number that, you know, Scott Boris wants for his clients. It's not the money that his clients want. They want more. Because if you look in the past, I, we're, Major League Baseball is done with the Albert Pujols contracts, the Alex Rodriguez contracts. They're, those are those are done. You're, those aren't going, you know, even not Maybe maybe a Justin Upton contract. I think his now is fine, but yeah, yeah. Um, you know. But those big, those huge contracts, those are those are going to be done, and that's simply because players are not being overvalued anymore. In the sense that when there was a superstar player, you paid him more than was necessary, or more than he was worth, and from a pure statistical standpoint. And that's, and you know, at the time that's understandable, you know, you want to get, obviously we're Mets fans. You want to get Mike Piazza and you want him to stay. You trade for him. Great. At the end of the day, you have to sign him. And obviously there's more that goes into it than the pure numbers. I'm, I'm one of the people who uh, I like analytics. I think they're useful when getting a snapshot of a player and his performance and whatever it may be. But if, you know, maybe you look at, at the time, Mike Piazza, and you say, okay, well, based on the numbers, he's worth this, but obviously to the Mets, to Mets fans, he's worth um, well more than that. Right. He was worth, I mean, obviously, he's you know, Hall of Famer, unbelievable. But I think the trend now is people look at players that, um, you know, uh, like a Mike Moustakis, let's say, who hit for, you know, a franchise record home run amount of home runs in a single season for the Royals. Yeah. With, and, you know, big part of them previously, I think he would have been paid a, a huge amount of money. And it was, it was expected. At a premium position too. I mean, third base. Premium, I mean, third base. Yeah. He, he's a pretty good defender, but, you know, he's not, he's a relatively, you know, mediocre average hitter. He doesn't get on base a lot, and I'm being strikes out a ton. Yeah. Getting on base is what a lot of a lot of teams, um, uh, what they want from their players. So, um, I I think that you know this is really just a, a sign of things to come. And that's getting rid of the sure outliers that are Clayton Kershaw, Manny Machado, and Bryce Harper. It, uh, but you know Bryce Harper, uh, 
I don't think he's he, he's had talks in the past of the four hundred, five hundred million dollar contracts. I think uh, I think he's smarter than that, and Scott Boris is smarter than that to realize that you know, you know, he's not going to get that kind of money. He will get a gigantic contract. I don't doubt it, but for everyone else, I mean, I think Jason Worth, who hasn't been that he, he hasn't played that well for the Nationals in recent years, and he's getting older. Just recently signed for a minor league deal. Previously, I think he would have gotten a, a major league deal solely based on his name. Same thing with, you know, I think Ichiro got a major league contract, but it took him a while. It took him a while. So I think, and it was Seattle. It was more of a to, sentimental thing, and and it's Seattle. It was more of a sentimental thing, more so than yeah, it's absolutely. A, yeah. oh, absolutely. But I think players need to uh, reevaluate how they value themselves and how they. How, how much money they're asking for, frankly, because, um, look, Eric Hosmer wanted whatever amount of money he wanted, 200 million, whatever it was. And he wanted eight years for a guy who's 30, 31. Well, he's 28. He's, he's 28. Well, I will say, yeah, he's 28. And he's the, he's the guy that really surprised me in this offseason because I kind of felt like he would get the Jason Hayward treatment and, and, and ah. full disclosure, I think Jason Hayward is the worst contract in the history of baseball. Like mm. I, the fact that the Cubs and I, I love Theo Epstein. I think if he were to quit today, he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, he, he absolutely. But that to me is is that's unforgivable. If if I'm a Cubs fan with Theo Epstein, like oh, the oh, fact oh. that that guy got eight years, 180 million dollars. I mean, what were they smoking? <laughs> I, I, does it's Jason Hayward? I, I, I don't want to make that. I've ranted on that before. I don't, I'm not going to get to that. But, yeah, but, no, that's where I think analytics analytics got the best of um, uh, of the Cubs there. Right. Yeah. Everybody saw the age was, and the defensive know, run saved and all that. Yeah. Mm hmm. He's tremendous. Yeah. He's, he's a great player. He's, he's at whatever amount wins above replacement, whatever whatever that even means, and, and, and all that. I'm not a huge fan of, of war myself, but, you know. Look, I can tell you he's a great defender, but I could also tell you that he's not a big time hitter, and that no. he regressed from even his first two seasons hitting wise in the MLB. And if you're playing, look, there's there's a reason that um, certain guys don't play. That that's who I was thinking, Juan Lagares, because I know we're both Mets fans. Oh God, so, I love Juan Lagares. He's a Gold Glove center fielder, unbelievable. But if you can't hit two, if you hit two thirty, you can't hit two forty, two fifty. A goal defense doesn't justify putting you on there. Absolutely, and, that, and that's a more dramatic case of um, of that as opposed to Jason Hayward. But you know, it's a it's comparable. And um, but I do think that you know players have previously been overvalued, and a lot of instead of collusion or whatever people wanted to say. But I, I don't, you know, yeah. Go ahead. I, I don't buy. I don't buy into that. I don't. I, I don't believe it. It's it's more just you know. Every, every team has the same way of valuing players, and they're not going to overpay for someone. They're willing to wait it out. And look, the way the Mets got Todd Frazier, you know, instead of going out there paying twenty five, twenty eight million dollars for two years, they got him for what, like you know, sixteen million. Yeah. That that's I mean because that's what he's worth. He's not a high on base guy. 
or, or I think he's like a mediocre on base guy and doesn't hit for average, strikes out a ton, plays good defense. Mm-hmm. He's not worth $14 million a year, just to put it out there, plain and simple. And look, he's a great clubhouse guy. Whatever You can say whatever you want. I know Yankee fans especially say how huge he was in their playoff run, and I don't doubt that. I think that's there's a lot to be said for that. But it's hard but to pay on intangibles. It's hard, it's hard to justify, yeah. you know, paying $30 million for someone like that. Yeah. Right. No, I agree. I, and I'm, I, I go a step further than you. I hate analytics. I hate sabermetrics. I, I under, I, I hate it now. I, I understood it at a point, especially when the A's were doing it, because the A's were doing it out of necessity more than convenience. And I think Absolutely. that now everybody's doing it out of convenience and because it's this new toy and look at all this computer and analytics and oh my God. Da, da, da. And I, and I think people have gone in the extreme. And where, you know, I, I, I hate, I cannot stand war. I think it's the stupidest, dumbest stat in the history of sports. Like, like the, oh, well, this guy's worth a lot because wins above replacement. But you're not, the thing I don't like about war is like, oh, Mike Trout has a war of eight, you know, so that means he's more, he's eight wins more valuable than a replacement. Well, what if the replacement is Juan Lagares? That's not an accurate statistic. Because of course we know that Mike Trout compared to Juan Lagares is it's it's not even a it's not even a comparison. So the 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 stat is misleading in its own sense. It's not like you're saying, oh, you know, Eric Hosmer's WAR is at eight, you know, and his replacement is you know, you know, uh, Gary Sanchez or somebody. You know, like it, it it's not. It, you know, that's what I'm saying. You know that that's that's why I hate the stat. Overall, I mean, there's some things like I, OPS is fine, and I can, I just, yeah. I can't stand war. I think war, the war revolution, the war generation, they're so in love with it. I, uh, it just drives me insane. It's, that's a whole nother podcast episode, but, but I, I, I agree with you. I'm not as gun ho as you are that think this is the sign of things to come. I, I think next year will definitely be the year that's going to be, I'm going to be looking out for it because I think next year is what's going to really, what's going to sell one way or another if this was a, you know, kind of a one-time anomaly, or this is the sign of things to come. Because I think next year, I mean, you got Donaldson, you got Machado, you've got, uh, you know, obviously potentially Kershaw, you've got obviously um, Harper, uh, Harvey, if he ever figures it out, and we'll get to that. But, um, you know, so next year I think will be the determining factor. But the one thing that, I, you know, the thing that has confused me, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but um, – you know, there's a notion that this cl- this free agency class was terrible. And it, look, was it a star-studded free agency class? No. But I don't think it was a terrible free agency class. I mean, I think if you looked at this class compared to some of the other ones of the last few years, I mean, I think it's comparable. I mean, you know, if, if this was two years ago, if you look at a free agency class that had you Darvish, Jake Arrieta, you know, Eric Hosmer coming off a 38 home run season, you know, a 28-year-old uh or Mustaka's coming off a 38 home run season. You look at a 28 year old Hosmer. I mean, you look at these guys, you're sitting, you're sitting here saying like, Oh, you're just, you're guaranteeing that Eric Hosmer is going to get a $20 million. Like you're guaranteeing yeah. that you're guaranteeing that, 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 you know, at the very least, Mustakas is getting a Pablo Sandoval light, you know, type contract five years, 90 million. And I, I, I don't understand. I, I, it's interest. I'm I'm more interested and amazed at how this offseason played out. Like I, I don't really have one way or another to, to really analyze it because I, it, it's so foreign because I've never seen this type of treatment to players. And and I mean this is new to our lifetime as 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 fans, where these players have completely 
almost in the other direction have been undervalued in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think it's um, it's very interesting to see, and I do have to, I do agree with you. I think age definitely does play, and you know, who were a couple of years ago that these guys were getting bigger deals and and whatnot. But I mean, it's the, the analytics, the analytics rule baseball now. That's just the way it is. It's you know the way it's it's going to be for you know enough time until you know some other different advanced stats say otherwise or. There's a some sort of a counter revolution to to the numbers, but um, this is where you know this is where they're they're at right now in baseball, and um, it's interesting. I think who is uh, I think it's Greg Holland. Is it Greg Holland who's still? Yeah, out he's there? still out there. That's that's shocking to me. That, that's that to me makes makes little to no sense. Um, but if it means he comes to the Mets, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I think it's, I think it's more to come on this issue. I really do. I think it's more to come. I think we haven't even scratched the surface of where we're going to go with this issue. And I, and I will say this. I, if, if the one great thing that comes out of analytics and sabermetrics and all that is players getting evaluated, in my opinion, fairly, then I'm, I'm all for it because I, I've just, I, I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, again, Jason Hayward. The fact that Jason Hayward got a basically a hundred and eighty million dollar it's 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 a mind boggling. It's my and I know that was and that one was a little bit of a different circumstance. I I think if it if it prevents guys like Pujols from getting two hundred million dollars for ten years, if it prevents the Cano contracts, if it prevents these out these just these outlandishly tremendous just absorbing uh, you know I, i'm running out of adjectives to describe the the crazy level of contracts that these guys are getting then i think that some good would come out of sabermetrics i'll, I'll say that yeah that's a, i mean i have nothing nothing else really more to add to that other than i definitely agree i think it's um you know there, it's we're valuing players more accurately than before but I think we're still overanalyzing certain statistics. I agree with you. That's a perfect way to put it. Yep. Yeah. Well, if we transition to over to our our lovable Mets, um, <laughs> I, I I I will say one team that really benefited this year from the the depressed market, um, if you will, was the Mets. And I don't even want to get into. The spending issues of the Mets and the Wilpons. That, that's a podcast episode in itself to talk about the Mets and the Wilpons, but. Um, and, and you don't want to get me, you don't want to get me that angry. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. We've had a good show. We've actually agreed more often than not. So I don't want to, I don't even, and I, I would agree with you on the Wilpons and you don't want to get me there either. Yeah. But, um, but, um, where do you see this Met team this year? Um, I, I think recently in the last couple of days, I've, I've, you know, where the predictions have started coming out, I think a lot of people, are, are kind of in a similar state with the Mets as far as they think the Mets will be better. Obviously, you know, they see them being, you know, anywhere from 82 and 80 to 87, 88 win team. Um, and I think that's pretty fair, um, a fair yeah. assessment of the team. But where do you, where do you see the Mets? It's just from everything that you've seen this offseason, how it played out, the moves that they've made, the roster as it's currently constituted, where do you see this team going this year? Um, I, I have to say that um, actually I like the moves they made. I liked getting you know a guy like Jason Vargas. You know, look, the Mets you can never have enough pitching, and, and the Mets know that more than anyone with all the injuries they had last season, the year before. Um, having a guy like Vargas, who I know has a 
you know, had a freak injury, but previously had been, you know, he can give you 150 innings plus, and mm. he, he gets you somewhat, you know, he, he'll give you those innings. He's pretty reliable to go, you know, once every five days. And obviously that, you know, the irony of that is, you know, practically the second he signs with the Mets, he gets injured, but uh, that's that's that. I liked, you know, getting Frazier for, for that kind of value, I think it was, was great. I think Jay Bruce getting the amount he did at the time, I said, look, you know, that could be, you know, an underrated signing and what, and what they got him for. And it turned out being one of the bigger contracts of the offseason. Yeah. Yeah. No, amazingly. Uh, not, not anything I expected, but I mean, we, we both know we don't, it doesn't need to be said, but you know, I'll say it anyway. The season comes down to the pitching, like everyone else has been saying. I think, you know, we still need to see what we can, what we have out of, what the Mets have, sorry, out of, um, out of Noah Syndergaard because, to be completely honest, he's pitched one full season in his career, and that was 2016, and he was lights out. And I don't, and obviously, you look in spring, and he was lights out, and you know you have big hopes for him. But mm-hmm. you know he was, you know, 2015 he came up, he was a rookie, didn't pitch the whole season. 2017, I was at the game, he got injured with the when he when he tore his lat. That wasn't that wasn't any fun, but. Um, you know, so, but he's still, I guess you could say a bit of a question mark, not as much as some of the other guys. Right. Jacob DeGrom is the, he's, he's, he's the ace of the staff. He's, he's the guy. Absolutely love him. He's, he's a bulldog. He, he just knows how to pitch. Absolutely. It, he's the one guy on this staff who I can easily say to you, he goes out there every, every fifth day and you expect, you expect magic. And even if you don't get, the magic, he for the most part can keep you in the game. Absolutely, uh, and, and obviously then you get into Harvey, who you know between you know he recovered from his Tommy John, had a great fifteen, uh, sixteen was rough, he was injured, had that thoracic outlet syndrome surgery, then never really fully recovered from it. Now I, I like where he's at currently. I think he's in a in a position, and um, there's a sort of satirical uh, website, Mets Uncensored, that <laughs> is honestly hilarious. But uh, one of one of the guys I follow who writes for them, this guy Tom, said, you know, a lot's been said that Matt Harvey doesn't need to be the Dark Knight. Uh, but he, he does need to be the Dark Knight. And I, and I agree with him because, look, he's not going to come out here throwing 100 miles an hour. That's kind of beyond. That, that's... Right. That's beyond him. He can't really physically do that anymore. But when Harvey's on his game, it she, it's a different team because look, he can still throw ninety five, ninety six. He can hit ninety seven. That's plenty fast enough. Yeah, it's he needs to have that dark knight mentality, mm-hmm. that bulldog that aspect. Whoever whoever comes up to bat, they don't stand a chance. Right, and you hope you can see that. Uh, Stephen Matt, I'm. If he said he says he's healthy, and to me that's what matters. He hasn't been. He wasn't healthy last year, 2016. I'm not convinced he was fully healthy last year when the Mets tried to push him and really kind of saying he was soft and needs to be able to pitch through a little bit of pain and wound up he was you know had to get you know had a nerve realigned and mm. whatever that was. Um, I I think he says he's healthy. I I'm confident that he can pitch well. Now the fifth starter. Love that they picked Seth, Seth Lugo. I love Seth I Lugo. Think. I think he is so underrated. I, I, a guy that, to me, he has great stuff. And yep. 
he doesn't get the, the the buzz, and I get why he doesn't get the buzz that other, the other guys get. But I love Lugo. Every Lugo, Lugo. Every time he goes out there, he does something well. I mean, when he's healthy, when he's right, he pitches effectively. And I and I think if you give Lugo a spot in your rotation and you tell him to go out there for thirty to thirty two starts, I think Lugo's a guy that can win you twelve, thirteen games easily. Yes. Yeah, and and the the thing with Lugo also is I think that set a great example. This team, they said, look, this is an open competition. And they said it with the catching situation. They said it with the center field situation. They said it with the fifth starter with Zach Wheeler. Wheeler had an atrocious spring training. He did not pitch well. He didn't show anything. And look, this would have been the first time that the Mets, you know, five at one point young big name starters would have all been in the same rotation, having the same turn in the rotation. And that, obviously that would have been unbelievable to see. Right. But Wheeler played himself out of that situation and forced the Mets' hand. And to Mickey Calloway's credit, to Sandy Alderson's credit, uh, to the entire coaching staff, they said it's an open competition. And Lugo, frankly, won the job. And I think I still think their pitching staff is in a great situation. I agree. Um, if they're all healthy, I think... They they can win they can win enough games to, to make the playoffs I do believe that but um, coming off that I love Brandon Nimmo I think he has everything to be a very good leadoff hitter for this team I think he plays a very good center field and he in in spring training at least was much more aggressive hitting pit once he, when he got pitches to hit he wasn't simply taking them like he did last year and trying to work walks in that sort of new model of, of the on-base percentage guy. Uh, he still gets on-base a ton. He still has a great eye at the plate, but now he's attacking the pitches that he likes. And he earned the starting spot tomorrow. And I, I love it because, again, Juan Lagares was supposed to be given every situ- every uh, opportunity to win the starting job. And, you know, he was injured and whatnot, but he didn't hit in spring. Yeah. Uh, you know, that much was made about his, you know, adjusted swing, uh, sort of to get a more, a better launch angle. And, you know, it, it didn't work out. And the catching situation, both catchers had actually really good springs in Kevin Ploiecki and Travis Darnell. But look, they said they were going to play the matchups and the Mets are facing a righty tomorrow with Carlos Martinez. And frankly, you know, Kevin Ploiecki hits righties better than Travis Darnell. So they're starting Ploiecki. I love it. I think they're, Mickey Callaway's done everything right so far and, you know, handling injuries and handling, handling, uh, DeGrom's injury and Ligaris and Dom Smith, all those guys. I think everything's been sort of going well. They, they have the pieces to definitely make the playoffs. I agree with you. I, I completely agree. Um, I know you brought up Wheeler. Where do you see Wheeler? I, I think he's a guy that I think we've he's all been, I agree. I, I, I don't understand. Like what is the apprehension? I, I, I this was the Cardinals. He he'd been a reliever five years ago. Like I, I don't understand it. I you know the, the, all the talk that well they don't know if he'll he'll handle it or you know they don't know if his arm you know make him handle it. You know if, at, at some if point he wants to be a major league baseball player, then he should be able to handle. it. I completely agree. I, I, I to me I think that matter of I'll go out on limit side I think if he's a reliever he can be a Wade Davis type I mean he can be just absolutely just disgusting I mean you know people forget Wade Davis was a Zach Wheeler he was a guy that threw hard well he didn't throw as hard as Wheeler but he was a guy that had a you know 
just was a an enigma as a starting pitcher. I mean, you know, he had his yeah. moments, he had flashes, but was a guy that just could never put it together. What happens? He goes to Kansas City. They finally have a bright idea. Let's just put this guy in the bullpen. What happens? He, he starts throwing 97, 98, 98, four pitches, a four-pitch arsenal, and just the guy is just a, a, just a monster in the bullpen. Like, I don't understand what is the apprehension with putting this guy in the bullpen. I mean, I, I, I really don't get it. Uh, my only prediction, my only guess I would be a better way to put it. My only guess is um, with, you know, the thin amount of starting pitching that they have, you know, and that's for everyone. Every team is thin in starting pitching, no matter how many they have. They want to keep him there, but I think they have enough in, you know, Lugo and mm-hmm. uh, Vargas and Gazelman and guys like that where they can afford to. Um I, I don't understand. I think he could be a, a Wade Davis type. I agree. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, wh- what do you see? In, and we're going to wrap it up here shortly. Um, where where do you see the whole David Wright situation? Um, I, I, I'm almost at the point now where, where I, I kind of feel, and I hate to say this because, I mean, I, I'm a Met fan. I love David and everything that he's meant to, not just the organization, but the city. I, I almost feel like it's time for almost, I, and I know it's hard to say this because you know you can't tell a guy when to hang it up or when his career, when it's time to go. But I almost feel like the Mets are going to have to step in at one point and say, "Dave, enough!" Like, like almost like an intervention type of thing where like we can't even stomach seeing you continue to try to do this anymore. Like. It, even even from the the business, and I'm sure that the Mets, if they if you gave them true serum, they would love to get rid of that contract, obviously. But I mean, even beyond, but even beyond that, at this point, from a just a human aspect, I think the Mets are going to just have to step in and say, "Dave, enough is enough." Like it, it, it's not going to happen. It's just it just isn't. You know, and I and I and I feel like it's a black cloud. Not I don't want to say it's a black cloud, or maybe a gray cloud. Over the franchise right now, that I, I I kind of feel like this team really can't even move forward in a lot of ways because it kind of feels like the David Wright cloud is still kind of hanging over the franchise in a lot of ways. Well, I think a big step was made this offseason in sort of getting rid of that black cloud only because if they still had any sort of belief that David could come back in the near future, Todd Frazier would have never right, resigned. Right, right, right. Which I think I think is a is a very good thing. Look, I love I I grew up in sort of the David Wright era of thing uh, of things. You know, the '06 playoffs. I was you know, jeez, uh, I was you know, uh, ten years old at the time. Wow. So yeah. you're making me you're making me feel old right now, man. Young buck. Yeah. So <laughs> I was uh, twenty at the time. Oh no, I was I was what? Yeah, I was twenty at the time. I was about to turn twenty. Amazing. Yeah, you see, I grew up, that's that's what I grew up on, you know, so you grew up in, you know, the Piazza era right. of, of the Mets, so, you know, he was the guy, and it was obviously sad to see him leave, I was, I, I was crying when he left, he was, Mike Piazza was my, is my favorite all-time Met, but when it, when it comes down to it with David, they have the insurance on his contract, they only pay a couple million dollars on it, okay, that, that's fine, but... When David can't get out of bed some days, when he can't pick up his daughter, when he's trying day after day to just be able to do baseball activities and he gets 
constantly gets shut down. Right. It, it, it gets to the point where uh, you, you don't want to say, okay, well, you know, he's a waste of a roster spot because that's not, that's not the case here. Because, like, look, he's on the DL, whatever, it's fine. But for his own physical health, for his own personal health, um, he said he's giving it a he's giving it another try because he doesn't want to have the regret. And honestly, I, I can't blame him. But I do think that if sooner rather than later he doesn't, you know, decide to retire, he, I think a, a frank discussion needs to be made because it's not only affecting the team, but when when it affects your personal health and you have a, a little girl at home that you can't pick her up, that, that's a problem. And David knows that, but look, he, he has the mentality. He's he's an athlete. He's a competitor and wants to compete. And he has that drive. And, you know, it's it's difficult to hang up. You look at guys who play full careers who could, who can't hang it up. Right, and David was a, was on a Hall of Fame trajectory to w- without it actually really without a doubt I think Joel Sherman put that out there he he told actually told David that when he was talking to him said you know put his numbers up against you know guys like George Brett and Scott Rowland yeah I mean if and, you look at his first four or five years in the league I mean he was thirty uh, thirty home runs a three twenty batting average I mean and he was and people forget David was a was a very very good defensive third baseman as well uh, you know he always had some uh, issues with, with the throws but for the most part as far as his footwork and and the glove and just just the overall ability to play the position I mean he was great it, it, it's it's sad it really is depressing and sad that his career has been cut short. You know, and I've I, I honestly have never seen. Have you ever seen anyone better on on attempted bunts or yep. little hits yep. down the third base line? Then he comes yep. down barehanded every mm-hmm. single time. Yep. There's no one, no one better. He perfected it early on from his career. Yep. And you look at the things that he did. He was unbelievable. But if I'm being frank, and I've been saying it maybe last year, two years ago, it's. It's time. It's time I think. That, I think. I think. One way or another, I think this is the year. I, I think. I, I if I was to give a prediction, I think it's. I think either before the season ends or right after the season ends. I think one a decision will be made one way or another. I. I, I, I just think because at this point, if he doesn't play all year, which is obviously ninety nine point nine percent the possibility, um, that's what three years that he hasn't played a full season no almost yeah. four really when you think about it 2015 wow. he didn't play a full season 2016 yeah. outside of what 20 something games he didn't play a full season he didn't play all last year so and then obviously this year if he doesn't play an entire season i mean that's that's almost four seasons that he's just missed completely uh, yeah I, I think this yeah. year i i really do think that this is the year i think it i think one way or another we'll find we'll get a resolution on david one way or another this yeah. year um and finally, like what you know, we've gotten into Callaway. I was going to ask you about Callaway and what's your thoughts, but you kind of you kind of gave me your thoughts on Callaway, and I agree yeah. with you. He's he's definitely been a, a a breath of fresh air. And I'll be honest, I was a little worried with the introductory press conference because you know the press conference with you know the positivity and the we're going to love everybody that 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 was a little concerning yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from the corny aspect of things. But I, I've been impressed with what he's done. Um, what's your biggest outside of the pitching? Because I think it's too easy to to say. The pitching. Obviously, we all know that the pitching is the number one reason why this team will either be a bad team or a really good team. Um, yeah. What's the one X factor besides the pitching that 
you see that if it if if that X factor act produces turns out will be the determining factor of this team being a playoff team. The health of Joanna Saspitas. Okay. He showed yep. he showed this preseason that when he's healthy, when he's playing, he's an elite talent. He's I mean he like it's known. Twenty fifteen he carried the Mets to the playoffs and then Daniel Murphy carried them the rest of the way. Right. That's that's without without a question, but boy, I mean, even if you look at, I, I didn't, I saw some. I think uh, MLB Network did their like you know top ten at each position thing, and I was surprised that Yo was on the list because you know he was injured basically all of last season. Mm. But if you look at his stats, you know for the limited time he played, he had really good stats. And then you look at his 2016 season when he hit you know thirty plus homers. Then 2015, again, big home runs, big RBIs. He was unbelievable. And having his presence in the lineup, as opposed to not, is is so unbelievable. It's, you know, day and night, hot and cold. Um, Even with the new lineup that they have this year, if you take Cespedes out of it because of of an injury, Mm -hmm. I mean... Uh, they, they, the Mets and Mickey Callaway uh, believe in batting your best hitter second. You know, maximize the number of bad bats he has, better RBI opportunities, whatever it is. Um, you take Cespedes out of that two hole because he's injured. My, I guess you would put uh, Jay Bruce batting second, and then everyone else kind of moves around. That's a completely different lineup. Absolutely, yeah. and it, it it changes everything. And I think you know if Yo can. Keep his legs healthy. Keep himself. His, I mean, obviously his whole body healthy, but you know his legs have been have been an issue. And um, you know he looks like he doesn't look as bodybuilder like as he did coming into last season, and that's a that's a good thing it, because you know at the end of the day you're not a bodybuilder, you're a baseball player, right? But um, when he's healthy, the man produces, and the man is just unbelievable so i think he's a other than the pitching staff his health is the number one thing that you know is the difference between the mets making the playoffs and and not i agree um i I will say that if i had to pick um i'd say conforto i I think to me if conforto is healthy because i'm assuming obviously that cespedes is going to play and i think i think he'll be healthy this year um but to me yeah hoping obviously but um, but I think Confor- if he, if Conforto is healthy and all indications are that he's healthy and obviously from his performance this spring, he looks like he's healthy, looks like he's ready to go. If, if he's healthy, that's the X factor because when he's out there, when he's healthy, when he's right, he's their best pure hitter. I, oh, I mean, he's oh, without, without even – I, could, oh, I yeah. could watch his swing all day. Right. Absolutely. Oh. So if he's healthy, he's right. I think the sky's the limit for this team. I really do. If he's healthy yeah. and he's right, you know, I think it's the sky's the limit for this team. And that's assuming the pitching staff performs the way it does, obviously. Um, yeah. Before we go, I need a yeah. World Series pick from you. And don't be afraid oh, to oh, say oh. the Mets. Don't be afraid. Oh, well, uh, you have to know I pick the Mets every year. Absolutely. I mean, I, I hate when fans so, say, well, how can I you mean, pick no your reason, team? No reason to change it exactly. Now. No reason to change now. I'm exactly. The the World Series. Against who? I'll say, oh God, I mean, you can't pick against the Astros, can you? With with Verlander, yeah. and Michael, and Correa, and Altuve, and you know Bregman at third, and 
<laughs> we haven't had a re- we haven't had a repeat champion in almost twenty years. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Think about it. That's interesting. But I, I'll say I'll say Mets Astros with uh with the Mets coming out on top. That's more. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for sure. Absolutely. Why not? Right. It, it, yeah. We got to have hope. As Met fans, we've been conditioned to have hope. Man. Why not? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say. Well, Dan, man, I, I thank you for so much time. We were only supposed to go a limited amount of time, and you ended up doing two hours, man. So I thank you so yeah. much for that, man. It was it was great to have man, you on. Anytime, Manny. I'm more I'm more than happy to do this. I appreciate it, my friend. Hey, uh, before you go, man, go ahead and plug your social media. Where can people find you? Read your work, listen to your podcast, all that good stuff, man. All right. Well, uh, you can follow me. My personal account on Twitter is dancemets19. Uh, I think that tells you all you need to know, but. Uh, thedukenation.com, the Duke Nation on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, all that stuff. That's where we have our podcasts. And, uh, we should be having some, some good guests coming on soon. Hopefully, um, some players who they're, they're for the Duke women's team, their, their careers have just ended with a, a tough loss to UConn. But if, if we're being frank, it's, it, that's kind of expected. Right. Um, uh, we should have some people coming on as guests, and um, so the Duke Nation on Twitter, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, all that stuff. Uh, DanceBets19 is my personal account. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. Awesome, man. Yeah, go definitely go listen to uh, Dan's podcast on uh, on SoundCloud and iTunes and everywhere you can find podcasts. The Blue, obviously, if you're a Duke fan, if you're not a Duke fan, I don't know why you would listen to a Duke podcast. Maybe just to hate. <laughs> Maybe just to be negative. Like, oh, look at these Duke lovers. And blah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, man, if you're a Duke fan and you love all things Duke, um, he does really good work on that show. So uh, go ahead and listen. Go and subscribe. Uh, once nice again, time. man, thanks for having, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. And we will definitely, definitely, definitely sometime throughout the season have you back on. Sounds great, man. Anytime. Absolutely, man. Brothers and sisters! Brothers and sisters! I don't know what this world is coming to! Foul of the week. And uh, my foul of the week goes to this week to Leonard Hamilton and his apology. And not to the actual apology, but the fact that he actually had to issue an apology. Uh, if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, um, on Saturday night, late in the uh, Elite Eight game between Michigan and Florida State, um, with 11 seconds left, Michigan gets the rebound off of Florida State miss. Uh, Florida State decides not to foul and instead let the clock run out, basically conceding the game. Game's over. Michigan goes on to win. So after the game in the post game show, uh, Kenny and Charles basically make a big deal saying, why didn't they foul? They should have fouled there in that situation. 11 seconds left. You never know what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And I will agree. And I, I will agree for the most part that they probably should have fouled, but I can see not fouling. I can see that basically, hey, the game's over. It's a, it's a two, it's a two possession game. The game is basically over. Um, and it just blew up like this big thing. Why didn't they foul? Oh my God. What message is that sending? You basically conceded the game. 11 seconds is too much time left. First of all, it was an overrated thing. I mean, geez Louise, it's, de- it's at best barely debatable whether he should have fouled or not. And even if he does, there's no guarantee that they're get, that they're making a comeback in that game. First of all, Florida State can't score. Everybody knows that. And Michigan's a very good offensive team and a very good foul shooting team. So Michigan's going to most likely hit those free throws. And it's, and it's going to be what? A three possession game at that, at that point, it's a seven point game. It, what is it? A, a, a two, still a two and a half possession game. 
I, I just didn't understand the, the, the outrage. So anyway, come to post game, they have a, you know, the little, um, locker room or locker room area interview with the coaches. And Dana Jacobson basically asks him first question in, um, guys in the studio basically felt that, you know, why didn't you foul there, um, with 11 seconds left in the game? And Leonard Hamilton was pretty funny, I will admit, in the post game, because he looked like he just, like, what? <laughs> Bitch, what? Why are you asking me? Like, he basically had that reaction, basically. And basically got ripped to shreds on Twitter. Oh, he's being sexist and he's being dismissive of Dana Jacobson. And first of all, I love Dana Jacobson. I miss her on, on the old cold pizza days. Dana Jacobson's the homie. I love Dana Jacobson. I think she does a good job. Um, but this idea that Leonard Hamilton was, was dismissive and, you know, oh, he, you know, Stephen A. Smith ranting about Leonard's, Leonard Hamilton, his behavior. I'm like, can we stop with the overly politically correct environment and world that we are just trying to live in? Stop. It is enough. He didn't do anything wrong. Okay. You know, maybe in a perfect world, you handle that situation a little bit better. You just shut up, answer the question and move on. Was it a big deal in the grand scheme of things? No. But I mean, this idea that Leonard Hamilton has to actually issue an apology, that he has to issue an apology because, oh my God, he was so disrespectful, disrespectful to poor Dana Jacobs. And how can you do that? How can you... How can you treat her that way? How can you be so dismissive of her and yada yada and this and that? I mean, can we stop, please? Can we stop? Can we stop living in this overly politically correct society where every little thing, every little action, every little display, every little thing is going to be taken to the M fucking power? Like, stop it already. Oh, my God. The fact that this man, so, of course, he gets abused online and then Leonard Hamilton has to issue an apology to Dana Jacobson. I'm like, really? Really? Is this the world we're living in? And I know I, I rant on this about every every other show I guess about the overly politicized world that we live in. But I mean, I mean, really, I mean, it wasn't a big deal. Okay, he probably could have handled it better. Um, you know, maybe after the fact, okay, hey Leonard, maybe you want to act a little bit different in that situation. You know, somebody talks to him. Okay, fine. But to go out there and issue an apology, I mean, really, really, really. That's my foul of the week. Leonard Hamilton's apology, because it was fucking ridiculous. Ridiculous that he had to actually issue an apology. Because I've seen coaches do way- I mean, fuck, Greg Popovich! Greg Popovich does way worse! He, he's more dismissive of fucking sideline reporters than anybody else! Do we need to bring a Belichick? He's no day at the beach. But Leonard Hamilton has to issue an apology. Right, come on, really? 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 Anyway... I can rant about this issue for hours and hours on it, but I've already been here almost two and a half hours, so I'm going to get the hell up out of here. Um, thank you for listening, as always. I want to thank Dan Labriola for joining me on the show. I was only supposed to keep him on for maybe 25 minutes or so, a quick spot, and it ended up being uh, almost an hour and a half. So I thank him for his time. He's real gracious. Hope you guys enjoy that. Um, as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Uh, I appreciate you guys' support. Of course, we would never have a podcast without you guys, so thank you for listening. Keep listening. Keep supporting the show. Um, I will be back as always next week with another episode of the podcast. Until then, uh, have a nice weekend. Have a nice Easter weekend. Be blessed. Eat and I, you know, go to church, go do all that good stuff and enjoy time with your family. Um, hopefully everybody enjoys the final four this weekend. Uh, should be two pretty good games, I would think. Um, I'm going to have a hard time watching it, of course, because I'm still in mourning. But uh, yeah, man, happy Easter, everybody. Enjoy your weekend. Be safe. Be blessed. All that good stuff. And um, for Dan Labriola, I am Manny Fresh. I am out. Peace. Serious.